This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Welcome, everybody, to episode 200 of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, as per usual, as we transition into the preseason series, is my best friend and co-host, Brian Com. Wow. Hi, Elon. I love it when you call me that. I don't know which title I appreciate more, best friend or co-host. Best co-host would be a nice amalgamation of the two. Best co-host friend, you're my best co-host friend. It's nice to see you. This is my happy voice. Yeah, well, so this has been a bit of a ride over the past few weeks and months. We did the Almanac, right? We did episodes all the time. Then we released a couple of episodes that were just from the Almanacs. We didn't have to record a show. Then we did that interview with Daniel Negreanu. Then we did that interview with Dom Lucician. And now here we are finally, just you and I recording a regular episode. And what a fun coincidence that episode 200 is the episode where Eric Carlson gets traded. Oh my God. Like you tweeted that. Why is that a funny coincidence? Episode 200. It's like a milestone episode. I don't know. If it was like a multiple of 65, I'd say that's a funny coincidence. Uh, I I feel like episode 200 is a big deal. I'm very excited about it. If you don't care, then fine. I'll just move on. I don't know why you have to like poo-poo my excitement (laughs) here. Maybe there's some numerology buff out there listening who can make a connection between 200 and Eric Carlson getting traded away. I I get it, Elon. You're very good. Good connection between a milestone number and a milestone event. You know, we've gotten emails of people who don't like it when you're (laughs) pooing me for no reason. I think you think it's very funny. I don't know. I feel like most people consider the 100th, 200th, etc. Like when it's 2000 and 200, the year 2200, I think people are going to celebrate and be like, wow, what an interesting year. Anyhow, Eric Carlson got traded and you and I are here to talk about it on our podcast. Of course, this is not a Sens podcast a lot of people were asking us oh now that eric carlson is not on the senators anymore do you have to tr- change the name of your podcast we made this ama on reddit and like you know it was like oh ask questions to the hosts of the keeping carlson podcast and the next day was happened to be the day that eric carlson got traded and people are like oof that was bad timing like no no it wasn't it was fine <laughs> it was <laughs> great timing we're more relevant than ever yeah but of course 
let's talk about this trade. I feel like uh, like half this episode is going to be us just breaking down the Eric Carlson trade. And then we're also going to go into some Yahoo ADPs like we like to do every year and say who which players we think are getting drafted a little too late or a little too early. Before we get into all of that, of course, we have to mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. It's the top fantasy hockey website out there. You have to be going there like every day right now as you're prepping for your drafts. First of all, they have their own guide that you could download and they update it all the time. They have articles every day like when Eric Carlson got traded. There's been so many any uh, articles breaking down the trade, different people's opinions, which players benefit, which players don't. It's just a really great site. Plus, as you get into the season, you're going to have all your tools at Frozen Tools. So very useful tool, DauberHockey.com. Check it out. Brian, let's get into this. So the Ottawa Senators traded Eric Carlson to the San Jose Sharks, along with Francis Perron for, I'm going to throw you some names here, Brian. Let's see how many of them our listeners have heard of. So Josh Norris, Chris Tierney, Rudolph's Balkers, Dylan DeMello, and then some picks. They had like a mix of first and second round picks with different conditions. Like Carlson has to resign and, or if Carlson starts the next season in the Eastern conference, then the pick gets higher, which is like, who, what's with the Sens obsession with who, like if the player goes to the Eastern conference or the Western conference, like hello, newsflash, you're not going to be a good team for a little while. It doesn't matter if you're competition anyway, whatever. There's also conditions. Like if the sharks make the playoffs or not, if the sharks make the conference finals or not in the end, they got some picks and they got a big slew of players. This was under a week after the Habs sent their pending on a strict free agent in a year, Max Pacioretty, to the Vegas Golden Knights for a high pedigree prospect, Nick Suzuki, Thomas Tatar, and a second round pick. And when we did this AMA that I was talking about on Reddit slash r slash hockey the day before the Carlson trade, one of the questions that we were asked was, what do we think a good return for Carlson will be? Or what do we think they'll be able to get? And I naively answered that I feel like the Sens should be able to get at least better than what the Habs got for Pacioretty. It's a similar situation, but Eric Carlson is obviously a, a tier or two or three above eric carlson but i don't really know like they got more players like i guess you could say josh norris he was the 19th overall pick in 2017 as opposed to nick suzuki who went 13th but you know that's that's who the sharks had right i think that's probably one of the sharks highest pedigree prospects uh then i would have thought the sense would get one of the young guys we've been talking about on the sharks for the past couple of years guys who get chances in the top six like a timo meyer kevin lebank maybe like a even a donskoy would be nice but no they get chris tierney which i feel is like not that great. These picks, we'll see how they go. Like the Sharks are looking really good now. I don't know how high these picks are going to be. So, Brian, I know this trade upset you as a Sens fan. You made that very clear from our Twitter account the day it happened. So maybe before we break into the fantasy impact of this trade, which is huge, right? Like my first thought was like, oh, my God, Carlson and Burns on the same team. What the heck does this mean? But before we get into all of that, why don't you just give all the listeners what I know you're dying to do, a rant about what you think about this trade. I can't imagine you liked it. I wasn't going to rant, but you invited me. Don't make this sound like I wanted this. I'm getting all wound up for nothing. First off, I think it's Rudolph Balsers for what that's worth. And you said, oh, I'm sure Josh Norris is one of the Sharks' top prospects. No, no, he's not ranked their top prospect or their second best prospect. He's ranked like Balsers and Norris were apparently consensus third and fourth best prospects in San Jose's system. So there's that. And you said like as a Sens fan, I'm upset. And I'm offended as a human being, as a reasonable human being who can think and string two logical thoughts together. I am offended by this trade. And I'm trying to keep myself as hinged as I can because I've definitely, I have spilled enough frustration over the last few days that you can find on Twitter and the Ask Me Anything and uh, just my colleagues at work who actually, they they wound me up. But anyway, I, I think the biggest problem I have here with this trade, and it's one I've had with the Ottawa Assets Organization for a long time now, is that something doesn't at all pass the sniff test with all the claims that management is making about their efforts to re-sign Carlson, 
trade Carlson, now enter rebuild. I love how much back padding is happening on their end for saying, hey, you know, we know, we know it's time. It's time to rebuild. We're going to need your patience. We know what's the right thing to do. And so we're going to do the noble thing. We know it hurts us in the short term and we're going to tear down our team. And they're, they're so proud of themselves and water carriers everywhere are patting themselves on the back too, saying, oh yeah, good job sense. Way to enter that rebuild with class. But there was no plan to go into any rebuild as recently as 10 months ago. How do you trade away a first round pick as you're entering a rebuild and then your team is going to be worse than ever and get, be set up for to get such a great asset by being a terrible team and then use your remaining first rounder that you have for the next two years in your rebuild phase. In the first two years of your rebuild phase, you spend that first rounder on Brady Kachuk when Philip Zadina was just sitting there and other blue chippers are waiting in 2019. But apparently Brady Kachuk was just too great a franchise rebuild cornerstone to pass up. And Elon, hot take, I will bet you dollars to donuts that if Zadina was the Canadian and Kachuk was the Czech, you'd have Zadina being paraded around in a Sens jersey instead. Oh, interesting. So you're saying that this is all just more of a marketing thing than making the best choices for the team? Yeah, exactly. And not only just marketing choices, but playing to nationalistic tendencies too. This is my read into it, but I feel very confident in this take. And then and then you make the Carlson deal. And how do you begin your defense of the Carlson return? The first things you say in like outside of a formal press conference, you go on Ottawa radio and you say that you got Brady Kachuk's best friend? Nobody cares. Somebody tell Pierre Dorian that Thomas Shabbat's best bud is Connor McDavid and see if we can swing something like that. And now we're just being assaulted with classic lines about building character that always come from the teams who have the least amount of it going around, especially in their front office. The Habs are another team who had recently turned their attention towards building character. The Brian Burke lease before them. What do all these teams have in common? They seem to lack it, they seem to lack a plan, and they seem to whip out the word character when they had no other cover left for not having a plan. What should make me think, Ottawa Assets front office, that you're at all a good judge of character? You're run by a disaster of a human being in Eugene Melnick. You didn't even fire your teenage bus driver harassing assistant general manager. You just like temporarily like said, we'll wait to see what happens, half defended him, and then let him resign and then your choice of where to involve yourselves in the community in Ottawa is dubious. And you've clearly let petty squabbles with players dictate so much of this ruinous path that you're on. Mike Hoffman was apparently, like, word was in Ottawa, going around the city. He was a bad character all the time. All of a sudden, they care about it. Trading Dion Phaneuf was rumored to be the consequence of some weird locker room argument with Pierre Dorian. And then, of course, it seems as though the organization has been lying through its teeth to try and frame every single thing that's happened as a W for them, even when they're taking obvious L's. It's like the classic, uh, excuse me, I'm going to get vulgar here for a second, but don't pee in my face and tell me it's raining. That's the cutest way to be vulgar. You're a cutie, Brian. I'm loving, I'm loving this rant. Afterwards, I want to hear an equal, I guess, opposite of a rant complimenting the San Jose Sharks organization to give both teams equal time. 
Okay. I don't think that's going to happen. This is like, and again, this is not even just an auto rant. This is just a, a hockey sports fandom rant. We've seen this movie so many times before where teams try to squeeze blood from a stone. They say they're competitive when they're not to try and still say tickets, say they'll spend money when they don't actually. And then when it all comes crashing down, they say they're looking for things like character, commitment, truculence, and it's all just excuse after excuse to cover up incredible amounts of ineptitude, mismanagement. And in this case, in this particular case, a near bankrupt egomaniac owner for whom this team is his last vestige of relevance like aside from owning the ottawa senators eugene melnick is nothing so what i would like instead of just tearing apart the team here's here's a path that they could have taken they could have just said well um we kind of blew it this is what we tried to do please trust that this was the best we could do and this is the plan going forward they could have started and said, look, we had we thought we had a shot at contending because we went to double overtime in the conference finals with the eventual cup winner. By the way, they did think they had a shot at contending. That was a big mistake. They really misevaluated their team. Anyway, so they thought that's where they were. So, hey, we went and traded futures for Matt Duchesne. Uh, and then it turns out we were wrong. That sucks. Something went wrong in our assessment of where our organization was. We're going to try and figure out what happened. And now we've reassessed our situation and we think we're rebuilding. And with hindsight... You know, that first rounder would have been really helpful to have, but we don't have it. And that's the reality because Colorado, Joe Sackick said, TT, no tradebacks after we finished the deal. And so we figured our next best way to get futures, to stock the cupboard and get on this rebuild path was to trade our biggest asset, which could help us load up as best we can on futures. And Eric Carlson is our biggest asset. And while we would have liked to receive a generational prospect in return, the market on a 28-year-old high-ticket superstar with one year left on his contract meant teams weren't ready to part with our first asking price. So we tried to wait it out, get that asking price. Something went wrong along the way. It wasn't happening. So this return is what we've got. And this is why we like this particular return that what we got. And we're going to do the best that we can from here. It might not be as good as anyone was hoping. It might not seem like fair value, but it is the best that we could get on the trade market. But instead, of course, we're hearing all the SENS management speaking in nonsensical timelines and platitudes that don't align or pass the smell test at all for people who claim to have some idea of what they're doing. And so here we are, Ottawa traded away a generational player who was and could possibly be the best ever in franchise history, but made sure to slowly erode all their leverage throughout the process. And now they have capital S6 assets, none of which project to even have a shot at being a difference maker in the NHL. So, uh, I think I'm done, Elon. Go Carlson. Ah, I love it. Carlson. (laughs) That's what I've been saying for like three years now. Now I can really mean it and not have to cheer for Ottawa at the same time. Yeah, there you go. We get to move on. I'm very excited. I actually placed a bet, Brian. I know you don't like us talk about gambling on the podcast, but I placed a bet on the San Jose Sharks to win the cup just to solidify that I'm going to be cheering for the Sharks and Eric Carlson. I'm very excited to see how he's going to be able to do in this new situation. So let's dive into this now. And like I said, my first thought about this new situation for Eric Carlson on the San Jose Sharks is that the Sharks have Brent Burns and Burns and Carlson have been the two highest scoring defensemen in the league over the past five seasons. Carlson is way ahead, 355 five points in 394 games over these last five seasons. Burns has 278 points in 328 games in that span. So Carlson's like a 74 point season pace. Burns closer to a 70 point season's pace. Brian, you want to try to guess who's third overall in the last five seasons of points behind Carlson and Burns? Okay. Let me take a few guesses. First guess, Latang. No. 
Okay, second guess, Shattenkirk? You knew that it wasn't Latang because I'm not even talking about point pace right now. I'm just saying who has the most overall points, and Latang's been injured for so much. <laughs> Shattenkirk, not even close. Okay, uh, Bufflin? Honestly, don't overthink it. It's it's actually an easier Hedman? answer. Yeah, it's Hedman. Klingberg? It's Hedman. Oh, Hedman. Okay. Well, I was just thinking maybe he only came on too recently, but the last two seasons have been really great, and he was consistent before that. Wow, Victor Hedman has been so good for so long. That's kind of neat. Like, right now, the top three defensemen in fantasy, according to most people, are also the top three of the last five years. So I guess the past, we'll see if it predicts the future going into next year. Before the trade, it was obvious to most people that Carlson and Burns were the top D options in fantasy. And it was fun to debate. We've had this debate many times over the summer and over the past year. Like, who should you draft first in a league with these settings or these settings? Carlson or Burns? Who do you want more? Now that they're on the same team, does this change? Like, are Carlson and Burns still the top two defensemen to own in fantasy? Do they hurt each other's value? Do they help each other's value? Like, I feel like the big thing that I that jumped to my head right away was, are they both going to be on the top power play? And I was thinking, oh, no, what if they, like, split them into two power plays to make them both good? But then I was like, how can you not have Eric Carlson and Brent Burns both on the power play most of the time, right? So I feel like there's no way they're both not on the top power play. But anyways, what are your answer to these questions? Like, do they help each other or do they hurt each other somewhere in between? So I think they're still the two best fantasy hockey defensemen. I don't know that they're as far ahead of the rest of the pack as they were when they were playing on separate teams. I think they each have lower ceilings being on the same team. Uh, My first rough inclination is to knock five points off of both their projected totals. And also my first inclination is, yeah, that the Sharks will load up the top power play with both of them. However... We also have the possibility, we don't know yet, but there is the possibility that they can run. They have the personnel to do it. Two reasonably even power play units with Carlson helming one and Burns helming another. Interesting. Yeah, I guess they could do that. That would make everyone so sad because then that also would hurt the fantasy values of guys like Pavelski and Couture, right? If they're getting less power play time, that's always been the thing with the Sharks is the top power play plays so much and they're all so good. I feel like we've got to just assume that it's going to be Pavelski and Couture and Thornton and Burns and Carlson until we hear otherwise. And so you're saying to drop five points off of both of them. I'd like to get into that. So how about this? As we go through analyzing this trade, we may as well make live updates to our Almanac spreadsheet. So for those of you who don't know, if this is like your first episode of the show, Brian and I recorded the world's first ever NHL audio Almanac, where we like... Like we recorded this massive audiobook, one chapter per team where we broke down all the fantasy relevant players. And at the end of each chapter, or as we were going through, we were putting down projections onto a spreadsheet of how many points we thought each player was going to get. So we have this big spreadsheet of projections. And I feel like we have to make a lot of changes because of this one trade. There's so many players and I'll get to them one at a time. And we'll discuss all the players I think might be affected by this trade. So let's look at it in terms of the raw numbers. We have Eric Carlson first. We put him down Each of us put down 75 points. And by the way, these are all paces. So we didn't try to project games play. We were just like, this is how many points we think the player would get if they played all 82 games. So we both put Eric Carlson down for 75 points up from his 72 point pace last season. He had 62 points in 71 games last year. Last year was funny. Like Carlson led all defensemen in point pace. He barely edged out a couple of guys like Carlson and Barry. I'm talking about John Carlson there. And yet people consider Eric Carlson to have had a down year. And I feel like it's especially wild that Eric Carlson was able to lead all defensemen in point pace, even though he had that random 10 game pointless streak that started on November 16th. So if let's say you even was only like a half point per game guy during that stretch, he would have done even better. Anyways, you could also say maybe you want to take off some points. So whatever. He ended up, like I said, this really great point pace. Now that we look at him next year on the Sharks, are we going to keep him at 75 or are you going to like lock this in, like you said, and take off five points? Yeah, I'm going to take Carlson down to 70 points. 
maybe even high 60s. I'd go even lower if he still were an Eric freaking Carlson who will always and forever have point per game upside no matter where he is. But I am concerned that Carlson is somewhat limited now because I don't think the Sharks are going to score 80 extra goals with Carlson in the lineup, which would be one way for him to get a point per game pace. And so let's do some accounting to find where Carlson's points could come from. Uh, Let's take a look uh, to New Jersey for a second to see just how many more goals the Sharks might be able to score with their new superstar. And I do this because the Devils are a really great recent example of a team that had a star player arrive there in his prime. And we can see how that impacted their whole team goal totals to get a sense of how many extra goals the Sharks might score, which will help give us a sense of how many points might be available for Eric Carlson this season. So Taylor Hall arrived as a New Jersey Devil at the start of 2016-17, and their goal totals actually stayed even that year compared to the year before he arrived. In 2017-18, though, the Devils scored 243 goals after three straight years where they'd had about 180 goals as a team. That's 60 more goals. Uh, They did have a higher team shooting percentage in all situations, but they also had higher shot rates. And the Devils had a lot of room to grow 60 goals because they had the league-worst shot attempt rates for a couple years running heading into Taylor Hall's beginning with them and including his first season with them. But the San Jose Sharks don't really have that room to grow. They're already a top five team in shot attempts for 60 minutes at all strengths in each of the last couple of years and a top six team in expected goals for per 60 minutes. So how much more can San Jose actually grow their goal scoring totals? And what I'm suggesting here is that there's not a ton of room for them to add offense to their lineup. Like there is a finite number of points available for Sharks players to get in on. So even if I want to be generous and say the Sharks manage to get another 30 goals and that those goals turn into Carlson points, there are still another 40 points that we need to do some accounting for if we want to say that Eric Carlson is is a 70-point player. Say to keep it simple, you take five points each away from Hurdle, LeBanc, Burns, Meyer, Pavelski, Thornton, and Evander Kane. There are 35 points right there that Eric Carlson can steal away. Another angle to try and take here as well. When's the last time an NHL team had two defensemen who were this capable offensively, like Burns and Carlson, and how'd those guys do? And to do that, I'm looking at the 2006-2007 Stanley Cup winning Anaheim Ducks, who had Scott Niedermeyer and Chris Pronger combining for 128 points, exactly half of which came on the power play. Niedermeyer had 69 points on the season. Pronger had 59 points. They both played 27 minutes a night. So that was one year before the behind the net stats keeping era began. And my memory isn't good enough to quite remember how they split those minutes and even strengthened on the power play. But I'm kind of wondering if that's still the general split we're looking at here. Uh, Same number of minutes, 70 points, 60 points. Keep in mind the Ducks scored 254 goals that year, which is seven more than the Sharks did in 2017-18. So even that goal scoring total, the amount of goals that both guys could get in on, seems like it could be reasonably similar for the Sharks in 2018-19. It all kind of fits pretty neatly together, doesn't it? Um, Okay, so those are a couple ways to try and figure out exactly why I think Carlson does not have the ceiling he used to. I hate to underestimate our guy, but I think 65 to 70 points is a pretty comfy range for him now that he's sharing time with a lot of really fantastic sharks, including Brent Burns. Yeah, it's very interesting, Brian, the way you're looking at this. Like everything you're saying 
seems very logical. You're saying there's only so many points to go around and any points you want to give to Eric Carlson, you almost have to like take away from other players unless you assume the Sharks are going to score so many more goals. And you gave some reasons why maybe they won't be able to because they were already scoring so many goals. But that said, like Eric Carlson has been able to get 80 points before. And if he gets the same opportunities that he had in Ottawa, I feel like if he plays the same, but he's playing with better players, you'd expect him to get more points. And maybe, yeah, you're just taking a lot of points maybe from a single player. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's a lot of players on a team and a lot of goals to go around. So I really like this exercise that you did, but I'm definitely not going to say that this is like conclusive evidence that for sure Eric Carlson doesn't have the same ceiling. I think it's like a reasonable argument and I'm down to also downgrade that point projection, but I don't think I want to. I think I'm going to leave him actually at 75 points for me just because, uh, I don't know, I think he's going to be playing with better players. Like, I think it's amazing that he was able to put up such a high point pace last year. Though, to be fair, it was a 72-point pace last year, and we were projecting 75. So, I don't know, somewhere between 70 and 75 sounds good, but I definitely don't think it's out of the question that he can hit 80 again just because he's Eric Carlson, assuming he's playing on the top power play. But, like, when we talked to Dom last week, I think he brought up a really good point that a lot of projections, you got to consider time on ice, right? The more time you have to play, both at even strength and on the power play, the more opportunities you're going to have to get points. So, Eric Carlson was obviously a very heavily utilized guy in Ottawa and on San Jose they not only have Brent Burns they also have Mark Edward Vlasic who is someone who could eat up a lot of time maybe the Sharks don't need to play Carlson so much so now I'm kind of talking myself into thinking that I'm going to agree with you fine let's bring him down to 70 points still a premier fantasy asset and man I'm just really excited to see this team play like I was already so excited to see the Leafs play next year getting John Tavares now I don't know like I just want to see a game Leafs versus Sharks it's going to be unbelievable that will be a lot of fun to watch and yeah I, I don't mean to act as you know a chartered accountant doing those numbers it was a quick and dirty look but i i'm glad you can sort of get with the the general sense that again the sharks don't seem like they have a way to score 40 or 50 more goals with carlson which is going to mean uh the the wealth is going to need to be spread around a little bit more with carlson sneaking points away from his various teammates getting assists when they might have otherwise yeah, like I could see someone, for example, like Tomas Hurdle really getting hurt. And we'll get to him in a little bit. But yeah, I could see him getting like the Eric Haula treatment that we've been projecting for him over on Vegas. Okay, let's go now to Brent Burns. So as we discussed with Dom last week, by the way, if you guys didn't listen to our interview last week with Dom Lushishin, you got to check it out. That was an amazing episode. Dom is really good. You should also check out his projections, keepingcarlson.com slash Dom. Super cheap. By the way, the Almanac that I was just talking about, you could buy that still. Keepingcarlson.com slash Almanac. This is a no ads episode, by the way. No advertisers yet. So it's just us saying things that we want you to check out throughout. I hope you guys are okay with that overall. But yeah, so Brent Burns, like we discussed with Dom last week, we were expecting Burns, like you and I, Brian, were expecting him to bounce back from his down year of 67 points in our Almanac. We went in depth into our San Jose chapter about how a lot of his decrease in total points from the previous years was due to a really slow start. Like he sucked in his first 19 games points wise. He took a bunch of shots, but nothing went in. He had no goals, only seven assists in 19 games. That's terrible for Brent Burns. But in his final 63 games of the year, he had 60 points. He led all defensemen in points from that point on by a large margin. John Carlson was the next highest with 51 points in that span. And again, Burns had 60 and then came Ghost Bear with 59. Eric Carlson had 45, but though he played six fewer games. Like Burns tore up the league. If you just take out those first 19 games, and Dom said in our interview from that what he's learned is you can't throw things out unless you're talking about Crosby when he's playing under Mike Johnson. But still, like, I feel like we saw that Brent Burns is still capable of being an elite guy. And I don't just look at his 67 points from last year and go, okay, I guess he's not like a 70 plus point guy anymore. Again, he just like Carlson is someone that in my mind can be very close to a point per game guy. Of course, he is a year older 
And he did have that slow stretch and you can't ignore it. Like it is possible for him to go slow as we saw just last year. So now going into next year, I had Brent Burns for 75 before Eric Carlson came to town. You actually had Burns at 70. So now at this point, are you going to make any changes? Like you said, take five points off of both. So are you going to move Burns down from 70 to 65? I am. I'm also taking Burns down about five points. I suggested in our almanac with 285 skaters projected and 65 goalies tiered over 27 plus hours of content. Anyway, in there, I did say that I had my usual faith in Brent Burns to keep up his fantastic as always numbers. Like you said, Elon Burns' early season slump was really just bad luck. Uh, I mentioned this in the almanac and last week on Dom's guest episode but it took Burns 84 shots on goal before he finally played in the game uh, almost two months into the season in which he scored one which is not characteristic of him or his shooting percentage and wasn't for the rest of the way and when we did see some decline in Brent Burns's shooting and scoring rate stats it wasn't alarming to the point that I was knocking a lot off my projection because of concerns with him entering his age 33 season rather I dinged him more in upside mentioning that instead of hoping for Burns to top out at 75 points I was falling down towards uh, like the number 70 as his upside with my actual projection settling in around the mid to high sixties. But now with Eric Carlson in the picture, I'm going to adjust to take Brent Burns down into the low to mid sixties. One thing I'm really curious about though, is how Eric Carlson affects Brent Burns's shot taking habits, because that's a really big reason of why you want to draft Brent Burns because he can pop 300 shots on goal. No problem. I'm especially curious about how this works on the power play where Brent Burns does get a lot of his shots on goal. Last season, Burns didn't quite roam the blue line as much. He either shot from the right hand side of the blue line or he helped to create shots from Couture's position in the left side face-off circle and also helping create shots from the net front position as well. So with Eric Carlson to help on the blue line, I almost wonder if Brent Burns moves to that left side face-off circle spot himself to bang home setups from Eric Carlson and company and how much that really affects his shot totals on the whole. I think there's about equal chance that Brent Burns maintains or sees a little bit of decline in his shot on goal numbers. I will say it's not going to be, in my opinion at least, a crushing drop in shots on goal. So just worry a bit more about losing a handful of points more than anything. Handful of points, handful of shots. But I still expect Brent Burns to be able to mostly do what he's done for the last several years. Interesting. Okay, yeah, it's just so hard to like project this. I guess what you're saying makes some sense. Also, Eric Carlson used to be a really high shot taker. That kind of went down a little bit. But yeah, maybe it's Carlson whose shots on goals go down and Burns stay the same. And maybe, I don't know, maybe Burns' shots have a better chance of going in because he's getting sweet passes from Eric Carlson to put him in a better spot. Like I, at my naive view, not really knowing power play setups as well as you do, was that you'd sort of have like Joe Thornton, Eric Carlson, like passing it to Brent Burns at the point to the point somehow. And then Burns takes his shot and then you've got the other couple guys, like let's say Pavelski, Couture, or whoever, are just going to try to get in the rebounds and sort of set it up that way. But I don't know. Does that I'm, make sense? Well, no, I was saying maybe Brent Burns sets up like Ovi does. So this would actually help Brent Burns' goal totals if he's the guy taking like the, the, the Sharks' power play while Brent Burns was on the ice really worked primarily from that left face-off circle and the front of the net. So the front of the net, a lot of those might have been rebounds or deflections off point shots. And then the shots from the face-off circle, there was a lot of a, a lot of movement to get the puck to that position. And Brent Burns might be 
the best shooter on the Sharks from that position, even though it's never been his spot to play on the power play. Now he has a chance to maybe go ahead and play it. I'd be very interested to see if that worked out. Okay. I mean, by the way, Brian, I did hear you the first time. I was suggesting an alternate way of how the power play could be ran. (laughs) Yes. There's so many ways. That's the difficulty. And we're going to, like, as we continue talking about the Sharks, this is a weird situation. It's not just that we have Brent Burns and Eric Carlson on the same team and we're trying to figure out their power play setup like we are every other team in the league, but it's just so rare for a team to have two defensemen of this caliber that there's no real precedent for us to look at and see, well, this is how Team X did it, and it works pretty well for them, so that might be a model to follow. We are breaking ground here that we at least have not seen broken for 11 years, since 2006. All right, so to summarize here, we had Brent Burns. I had him at 75 points, and you had him at 70 points when we recorded our almanac. You said you're taking off five, so you're putting down for 65, and then I have to decide whether I'm going to keep him at 75. I'm at least going to move him down to 70, so I'll do that. Burns, down to 70. Done. I guess I'm with you. What a bummer. It's like a great situation for the Sharks, but kind of a bummer that now all the players that we're talking about are getting hurt in their fantasy value. I wonder if there's going to be anyone on the Sharks who we say gets more points. You've got to think if you're playing with Eric Carlson, you're going to get more points, right? So let's talk about some of these other players. Like there is this top power play. And again, I think we're going to have to talk a negative here because back in the San Jose chapter, we discussed how Evander Kane seemed like he'd be the obvious person to take the fourth forward spot on the top power play along with Thornton, Couture, and Pavelski. Though we did point out that Evander Kane was actually bumped from that top power play in the playoffs. The Sharks were going Couture, Pavelski, Hurdle, LeBanc, and Burns. And by the way, Hurdle was there ever since Joe Thornton got injured. So now with Eric Carlson coming, especially if he's going to be on that top power play, now I feel like Evander Kane has like almost no shot of getting on the top power play. There was already concerns he wouldn't be able to get there even before. Now I feel like he's for sure getting bumped. So should that mean that we reduce Evander Kane's projection for next year? We both put him at 60 or... Maybe the fact that he gets bumped off the top power play will be compensated by the fact that he's playing at even strength with Eric Carlson. So maybe he's going to have more even strength points and it's going to balance out in the end and we should keep him at 60. Yeah, well, it certainly helps that Evander Kane and most Sharks are now going to be playing the majority of their time with either Burns or Carlson at even strength. And those defensemen, of course, can advance the puck out of their own zone, set up offensive opportunities like few others or perhaps like no others in the league. But it certainly does hurt Evander Kane uh, that uh, his chances to show up on a loaded top power play unit uh, are zilch now. Or at least they seem like zilch if that's the route the Sharks go in loading up their top unit. Of course, things work out fine for him if San Jose wants to run two units, one each with Carlson and Burns. Here's a fun Evander Kane fact, though, for anyone getting too concerned. Uh, Evander Kane's career high power play points total is 10 He's never scored more than 10 power play points in a season. And that happened all the way back in 2011-2012. That was the first year that the Jets played in Winnipeg again after moving from Atlanta. So you're still just fine hoping for mid-50s from Evander Kane with a great supporting cast, but not guaranteed top power play deployment. And that's where I'm putting him. So I was hoping for 60 with occasional turns on the top power play. Now I'm not really going to be relying on those. And I'm not going to be relying on him to break his career high 57 points. 
Oh, you're going below 57. I still like the fact that he's probably going to be on the top line and he's going to be playing with now Eric Carlson or Brent Burns all the time at even strength. I'm good to leave him at 60 points. I'm excited for Evander Kane next year. I still think he looks good. And I we I feel like when we came up with this projection, we already thought that he maybe wouldn't get so, so much power play times considering he was already getting bumped in the playoffs. But it looks like we're pretty close. I'm saying 60, you're saying 57. So why am I even quibbling with you? You're the one that likes to go to the nitty gritty. I like to just do multiples of five. I almost, right, maybe we could have this discussion right now on the show. Like I could no, feel like I'm what? not having it now. I'm so over this conversation. I just want to say my opinion to the okay. listeners. I don't mean to cut you off. We've we've argued about this so much. You think that we should give all our projections in multiples of five, and yeah. I like the nuance that uh, you can offer by not providing your projections in multiples <laughs> of five. Yeah, so I understand why you would say that. And I guess my point, because I know maybe you're making it seem like it sounds dumb, that like, why would you not want to have more nuance? I feel like it's almost like a little, and not to say you are, but I feel like it feels like a bit of an arrogant exercise to try to like really pinpoint it down to a specific number of points. Like, oh, like I'm so smart. I'm thinking of it so cleverly that I actually don't think he's going to get 58 points. I think he's going to get 57 <laughs> points. Like, obviously we don't know. Like, That's one not group- what I'm doing though. I, don't, let me don't, finish. Let me don't miss, point. You, no, you're, you're misinterpreting my, my specificity with arrogance i have no idea what these guys are going to do next year but to me there's a difference between 55 plus or 55 tops and that's what i use the little nuance on either side of 55 to help illustrate okay i see like to me i understand what you're saying i don't think there's a right or wrong answer to me i feel like it's helpful to just be like is this a 55 point guy is this a 60 point guy is this a 65 point guy and that's sort of like we're grouping these people into what we think they are you want to add a little more like you say nuance but i think you kind of lose something there but it doesn't matter Either way, we're going to move forward and you could project your way. I just, I'll would, my you, way. would you prefer every other projector? Like put your own aside for a second. Would you prefer Scott Cullen, Dom, Dauber, all the projectors only release their projections in multiples of five? Actually, that's a really good question. So here's my answer to that. Dom... His projections are generated 100% by a model. So he doesn't even go in and make, like he goes in and like tries to predict how much like ice time the player will get and things like that. But then the, his model like spits out a number and that's what's there. So obviously there, I don't want him to like round the number that was like calculated by his model. So no, but someone like Scott Cullen, like I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I think if anyone's like, you know, just looking at stuff and then coming up with it off the top of their head, then yeah, I think I would appreciate if they just give me, you know, multiple of five. Like I don't need you to tell me that I think this guy's a 57 point guy and this guy's a 58 point guy like to okay. me that's okay. it it's okay you okay so i i would like to hear from the listeners on this one i would i i would like to know give us a hashtag team rounded or team specific for those <laughs> catchy enough hashtags okay. to let us know what, what you think is it silly is it a fool's errand to try and uh to try and predict the spaces between multiples of five again for me there's a big difference between 58 points and 56 points yeah, well, I mean, I think that's silly to say that. Well, like, 54 po- or 57 points and 54 points. Sure. Like, I feel like it's very similar. <laughs> like, I feel like that's one game here or there. Like, I know you're trying to get across more information by saying 54, 57, but in the end, it all gets kind of washed out to me where it's just like, like what do you think about this guy? But anyways, okay, let's move on. I didn't mean for it to be an argument, just an interesting well, we, discussion. The blessing we have from creating our projections this season is that you insisted that all of my projections turned it into a rounded number So at the end of the season, we can see which projection set of mine was closer to being accurate, whether it was my rounded set or my specific set. Sounds good. If it was my specific set, would that justify 
using no. specific numbers? Brian, if we've learned anything from making this show is sample sizes of one don't justify anything. That's almost like why I should say this, like, how did the- What do you mean Jersey- sample sizes of one? What's like, the one sample size? One season worth of data that your specific okay. beat out average. It's only one season. It's just like how the New Jersey Devils only scored 60 more goals and so how much like obviously it was an interesting road that you took us on but like and you ended up saying how it was a different situation because the devils had so many more goals to make up for because they were doing so poorly before but if you would have said like oh that means that san jose is going to do this i would have been like well i mean that's only one team once anyways i was having fun i hope it's okay brian and i we're going to talk about goalies later on and we're going to have some disagreements again but i hope we could to keep it as cordial as we've done here no i arguments. hope i hope you will still call me your best friend and co-host at the end of this episode I have no interest in arguing with you. I just want to talk about more San Jose Sharks players. I'm keeping Evander Kane at 60 points. You're bumping him down to 55. The next player I want to talk about is Tomash Hurdle. So Michael Clifford pointed out on his Dauber Hockey Fantasy Impact article that with Chris Tierney gone, the Sharks have an open third line center spot, which I totally like that totally went over my head. I'm really glad I read that article. Great stuff over at Dauber Hockey. And I really like Michael Clif- Clifford, actually. His articles are always really good. And yeah, so the Tierney was the third line center on San Jose with him gone he suspected that the prime candidate to get that spot is Tomas Hurdle, who was previously playing second line wing with Couture, but he can also play center and he's probably the best option now to play third line center. And if Hurdle gets this treatment that we, oh, by the way, also were expecting Eric Halla to get in Vegas. Like they brought Stasny in and now Halla gets bumped from the second line to the third line. So should we expect that Hurdle's not going to be able to get that many points next year? Like Obviously, he's not going to get on the top power play. We just talked about how we don't think Evander Kane's going to get there. So I imagine Hurdle won't get there either. Though it is worth pointing out that Joe Thornton is not exactly someone that we should depend on to be 100% healthy all year long. So maybe there will be an open spot for Kane and Hurdle and LeBanc to fight over throughout the season. But anyways, we're assuming at least to start the year, Hurdle's not going to be on the top power play. And if he's in the bottom six, I feel like we have to downgrade. We both put him at 50 points for last year, which maybe was kind of low because considering a lot of people expect him to have some upside, but now I don't even feel comfortable projecting him for 50. Like I personally wouldn't be drafting Tomas Hurdle. I'll let someone else draft him because he's actually still getting drafted reasonably high in drafts. But I think that's based on him being a second line winger and top power play guy like he was last year for most of the season. Yeah, Hurdle was kind of a low-key favorite before this trade happened uh, because he was rumored to potentially be someone who could set up net front on the power play. And that's why we liked Tomas Hurdle for 50 points, despite having him uh, seen him no better than a 45-point player over the last three years. And now in Hurdle's age 25 season, he's about smack in the midst of his prime. So I'm not sure we're going to see any huge steps forward, which is why we still limited ourselves to 50 points. But 45, uh, I think, is still the expectation here. If he does take a small step forward and keep playing so he's in his prime years, let's say he does play third-line center, end up net front on a power play one, a or power play one B unit. And that's a mix of scenarios right there where he gets 45 points, where he gets the best case on the power play because there's two even power plays for him to play on. And then at even strength, he plays at third line center, which is the worst case scenario. I think it's still more likely though that Tomas Hurdle plays second line center. The Sharks are deep, but I don't know if they've got quite the right depth to roll a top nine where Tomas Hurdle is worth more working to drive a third line than he is complimenting players on the second line. So that role at second line center is what I'm still expecting. And then on a second power play unit or occasionally a power play one A or B unit, uh, I'll still keep him right around the mid 40s of 45 points at the end of the day. And I'm with you. I'm not getting too excited about him. He's not about to be 
Oh my gosh, famous last words here. I'm feeling it right now. We can rewind to this tape. This time next year, after he scored 80 points, he's not about to be a breakout player. A lot of people have this misconception that just because a player's right in the middle of his prime, that that's when he's going to break out. And of course, the aging curve shows us that hockey players' primes can start around the age of 22, and then they start tapering off around the age of 27. But it's still like an incremental rise. You're not suddenly, you know, even, 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 and then pow, right when you're smack in the middle of your prime, you are crushing it to extents that no one has ever seen before. The last two seasons of what Tomas Hurdles has given us are clues to what he's going to be able to do at the peak of his play. And those clues just lead us to a conclusion of 45 points. That's a lot of words for a very boring projection. Yeah, Brian. So, okay, a couple of things there. First of all, you kept on saying how you think Tomas Hurdle will stay a second line center. He was never second line center. It was Logan Couture's second line center. Hurdle was on the wing. Sorry, I meant like hang on to a role where he might still be a second line center. You're right. I was looking at some line projections and the set I was looking at, I'm going to bring them up right now, had Hurdle centering Pavelski and Couture on line two and Thornton centering Evander Kane and Timo Meyer on line one, which is weird, right? Yeah. I guess you could switch Pavelski and Meyer and Hurdle still in the middle or playing wing with Couture. I still see him as a second liner, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, like, I don't know, though, Brian. Like, I feel like the Sharks actually are deeper than you want to give them credit for, because I could see, I think the more standard expectations based on what they've done in previous years is you're going to have the Joes together on line one, Pavelski and Thornton, and say throw Evander Kane there. Then you could have a second line where Logan Couture plays with, say, LeBanc and Timo Meyer. Like, they have enough top six guys. I don't know if Hurdle is so much better than guys like LeBanc and Meyer. And actually, Meyer is the next one I want to talk about, because if Tomas Hurdle falls to center the third line, which you're saying you don't think is going to happen, but Michael Clifford thinks it might happen. So who knows? But maybe Timo Meyer's the one who finally gets a spot in the top six, takes over that spot since he's a winger, and he's the one who plays with Couture. And I actually really like Timo Meyer. He only had 36 points in 81 games last season, but you can't ignore his 210 shots on goal playing less than 15 minutes average time on ice per game. It reminds me a lot of Victor Arvidsson's numbers in 15-16 before he broke out for 61 points the next season. Arvidsson was taking a ton of shots in low ice time, and so he didn't have the opportunity to do a lot. But then the next year when he finally got a good opportunity, he really broke out. And I'm not saying Timo Meyer is Victor Arvidsson, but if Meyer could get into the top six, which I think there is a reasonable expectation that it could happen now, especially if hurdle moves down then i feel like if meyer could get maybe more like 17 minutes per game 16 or 17 as opposed to 15 with all those shots on goal you're gonna get a lot more going in and i don't know i, I like him as a good sleeper for next year i prefer to draft timo meyer than tomas hurdle i'm curious to know who you would prefer to draft for next season so in our almanac i put meyer down for 50 points you put him down for 45 but now with a reasonable path to get that extra ice time i feel like he could end up being a really great sleeper like i don't know how much higher than 50 i would put him i'd like to put him at 55 but maybe that's crazy maybe i was already reaching by putting him at 50 when last Last year, he only had 36 points. Timo Meyer is a more exciting option in fantasy and life than Tomas Hurdle. I don't know about life. I don't know their personalities. But in fantasy, Timo Meyer certainly has the upside. Of course, it's at the cost of a lower floor. But I think his ceiling goes higher than Tomas Hurdle's. And one reason I think that is because in 2017-18, Timo Meyer, and you hinted at this already, Elon, he was a top 20 guy in shots on goal per 60 minutes and shot attempts per 60 minutes. And that's what you got at by saying how many shots he had in how few minutes he had. It translated very nicely. So if he is getting more minutes, then hopefully he'll just keep shooting away. 
And Meyer does seem like he could stick in a more well-rounded top six in San Jose, meaning he'd probably have two very good line mates between Kane, Couture, Pavelski, and Thornton. He'll get two of those if he does manage to hang out in the top six. And I think, yeah, I'll just say it again for effect, Meyer has more upside than Hurdle should he be able to hold that kind of spot down. And as someone who we weren't going to expect to see on the top power play anyway, Meyer really only stands to gain should the Sharks deploy two even-handed power play units. So I'm going to keep Meyer where I had him in our projections in the high 40s, but with enough shots on goal that I do prefer him to hurdle. Even if they end up with the same points totals, Meyer's value is better thanks to all those shots he's been firing on net. He's good. I like him. He's one of my sleepers for next year. Okay. Uh, Brian, any other skaters on the Sharks that you think we should talk about? Like, first of all, we've got guys like Pavelski, Couture, Thornton. You said before, I think when you were getting into Eric Carlson, that you want to maybe take some points off of all of them in order to, like, allocate your points to Eric Carlson that he so likely deserves. You're like, okay, sorry, Pavelski, Couture, each of you need to give away five points. Eric needs his points. He's new here. Everyone be nice to Eric. He's new here. Give him some points. So, yeah, are you going to expect any other of your Sharks projections to change with Carlson in the picture, aside from the guys we've already talked about? I think in general, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You can expect everybody to lose a handful of points, however many goals. Uh, the inclination is Eric Carlson's in San Jose. They're unstoppable. They're going to score so many goals. But again, they were sort of probably close to the ceiling of what's possible for even a really great NHL team. So, uh, And now they are sharing points with someone else. Someone else is getting in on those goals that they once had a, a, a freer path. A, a more of a right as I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I was trying to get a, get into the declaration of independence somehow, but I'm Canadian. I don't know the American one. Uh, okay. Sharks. Every player loses a few points. Thanks to Eric Carlson's arrival. Perhaps Mark Edward Vlasic's shot on goal numbers also fall back down. That's the other, the only other sort of ripple effect I can find among skaters. Last year, Vlasic had a career-high 161 shots on goal, and now I imagine he's more likely to defer to Eric Carlson while they're on the ice together. Uh, So that makes Vlasic probably fall further from the fringes of fantasy relevance, though he could have a really nice plus-minus. Yeah, I feel like Mark Edward Vlasic is going to be a big part of the Sharks' success next year if they're able to go far. Like, obviously, he's a great stay-at-home defenseman who's able to control play. And I feel like there's a really nice possibility of even strength. We haven't really gotten into even strength line combinations for the defenseman. Like, well, who's going to be in the top six? But you could imagine a scenario where they've got Burns, Carlson, or Vlasic on the ice at all times at even strength. That could be a really strong team. But yeah, I don't expect Vlasic to have much fantasy value for next year. Like, I guess, aside from plus minus, like you said, Brian, which isn't really a stat that we care that much about. People are having a lot of fun in the chat room with your suggestion, trying to talk about the Declaration of Independence. We have Matthew saying four score and 75 Carlson points ago. And but we'll, that's that's the Gettysburg Address. I don't know. Who, who the F knows this stuff? <laughs> Come on. We're Canadian, like you said. Though maybe I'll have to become American because now I'm cheering for the San Jose Sharks. Cali, baby. I don't know. I'm losing it right now. So let's talk about the goaltender in Martin Jones. He's the next guy who a lot of people are asking us about. Does his fantasy value change now that the Sharks have just brought in this primo defenseman? And actually, before we get to Martin Jones, I just keep thinking about what you're saying about how you have to allocate these points and take away points from everyone because Carlson's there. Like, I just don't really see it. Like, these, like Pavelski, Couture, Thornton, they're going to probably play the same amount of ice time. Some defenseman gets bumped, and now they play with a better defenseman. How can you say that they're going to lose 
points. I feel like they're going to be able to continue to get points, maybe get more. But I know you're saying these goals have to come from somewhere, but I feel maybe it's just a matter of like one guy like losing some goals. Like Yunus Donskoy gets three points next year. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, maybe, yeah, it's just like the bottom six. Everyone from there doesn't contribute that much. But I feel like, how can you say it's bad? Everything you're saying is logical, but at the same point, I just don't see how, like, oh, Joe Pavelski, from now, all the time that you were playing with Tim Heed, now you're going to be playing with Eric Carlson. So you're going to not get as many points. Like, I guess you're just saying that now these goals, like, I guess we always talk about IPP, right? The percentage of goals that were scored while you were on the ice that you get a point of. I guess you're saying that Carlson's going to have a high IPP or whatever, have his IPP. And then guys like Pavelski now will go down so like more goals might be scored while Pavelski's on the ice with the same number of goals but now you know there's a good chance that Carlson gets one of the assists and Pavelski doesn't instead but I don't know I I just feel like it all probably is a wash I'm not going to change any of these guys actually I'm only changing Carlson Burns Hurdle and I guess who else did we decide Vander Kane I'm not going to change all these guys just six of them yeah but not like Pavelski Couture and Thor not the ones whose situation don't change only the ones I officially I officially did not change them on our projection sheet I'm thinking about it but I haven't yet all right so if you bought the almanac you have access to the projection sheet definitely you'll have to check out that change log afterwards when we'll make our final decisions but okay I said I want to talk about Martin Jones sorry for everyone who's really excited about Martin Jones that I totally swerved away from him but yeah he's gonna have like we've said two former Norris winners plus Mark Edward Vlasic on the back end that's a good situation for a goalie to be in they could theoretically have one of these guys on the ice at all time at even strength if they want we had Jones all the way down in tier four after our Schmore Goalies Board episode, which quite a few people disagreed with even before the Eric Carlson trade. I remember, Brian, you had a long back and forth with at Kent 58 on Twitter about like he was saying that you had Martin Jones way too low basements performances for last year. I don't know if you want to get into your reasoning. Basically, long story short, you said that last year he had like a high shorthanded save percentage, which is sometimes considered unsustainable. Things like that, reasons why you thought that Martin Jones wouldn't be able to keep it up. But as a reminder, we had guys like Quick, Dubnik, Talbot and Bishop in tier three, and then Ranta, Allen, Jones, Rask, and Mike Smith in tier four. At this point, it kind of seems like we'd be crazy to tell people to draft Cam Talbot over Martin Jones, right? Like the Sharks are going to be so good and Jones is going to benefit unless you're really certain that Jones has a shaky position and Aaron Dell is going to take a spot. That would be a reason to have Jones lower. But aside from that, I feel like I would want to bump him up. Yeah. I'm going to bump Martin Jones up, too. I think that's fair. I I can't remember my entire Twitter exchange. It's available on Twitter still, if anyone wants to look for it. But the concern with Martin Jones before, when we were tearing our goalies, was that he could cede the net to Aaron Dell with Martin Jones demonstrating himself to be a decidedly average NHL goalie while Aaron Dell was showing better numbers in smaller sample, but also with untested upside that I kind of wanted to see, but with what amounts to two top defense pairings playing in front of him in San Jose now, Jones feels a lot more like a number one goalie on an even better team than before. Any of Jones's shortcomings are going to be less consequential playing behind a team that could be so good. And I think that that team quality is going to help insulate him from his mess ups being too consistently glaring or catastrophic. The Sharks are going to help him get out of trouble more often than not. And that means that a turn to Aaron Dell isn't going to be warranted so quickly should Jones falter. It's kind of like our theory on Pecorine the last couple of years, how uh, Nashville's so good that he's kind of protected in that number one spot, even if he is borderline, like losing his number one job, they'll rescue him and make it all look okay. 
And if you want to go back further, how about guys, I'm just throwing this out here, like Dan Cloutier, Chris Osgood. I don't have the numbers for those guys in front of me, nor do I know whether their backups offhand were more or less capable as challengers than Aaron Dell. But the point remains that we're looking at a goalie who is going to be very well taken care of by the team in front of him. So bump Jones up. He's not going to be exposed so badly if he does play poorly. I will take him over someone like Cam Talbot. Now that I feel less concerned, Jones is going to be exposed often enough to lose his number one status. I like it. I like this argument. I think it's very clever. It's like you before were worried that Dell could steal the job or steal some starts. But now that the defense is better, Jones is going to have an easier time. So then he won't look bad. So then they'll have no reason to let Aaron Dell take the job. Fascinating. Okay. I like it. So Brian, in fact, before we, because we're still talking about this Eric Carlson trade and we have a whole other team to discuss. Obviously you did a big discussion at the top about the Ottawa Sens organization wise, but we have a lot of players on the senators who are obviously affected by Eric Carlson moving. But before we get into that, since we're talking about goalies anyways, why don't we just take a little diversion and take like a sober look at our goalie tiers that we came up with at the end of Schmorgoli's board. Because for those of you who don't recall us saying this, like we actually recorded Schmorgoli's board not like a couple weeks ago when it was released, but like a couple weeks before that when we finished our almanac. And that was at the end of like a week long of intense recording all the time. I don't know if our brains were in the perfect place. So I think now's a good time to go through our goalie tiers with some new information that's come up during training camp and also just having had some time to really look at things, get some feedback from people, and let's see if we want to make any changes. What do you think, Brian? Okay. Well, you seem concerned. Yeah, that's that's my hesitation. And I I feel like we were in such an intense and devoted mind space. We we originally tiered our goalies at the end of the almanac, and we had just been thinking hockey nonstop 24-7, literally, for a good couple weeks, it felt like. And so coming back to them now, I'm always good to reflect and review, but I just feel like well, you go ahead and suggest your changes, but I wonder if we're going to forget, so, to be quite frank, some of the rationales and justifications we had for putting these guys where we already did with, like, again, being just entirely immersed in our hockey knowledge. I hear you. Okay. Well, we don't have to make any changes. I just want to go through and see if it still feels right to you. And I'll let you know of any like things that are affecting me, but I promise I'm not going to argue with you at all. I'm just going to present to you what we have, any thoughts that I might or might not have. And then you'll just say if it's something you agree with or not, even just if you could let our listeners know, even if you don't make any changes, I think the listeners would like to hear if something doesn't smell exactly right to you, even if you don't know exactly why. So let's go through it. Okay, very good. Very good sound effect here. We got high tech stuff going on at Keeping Carlson HQ. So I actually, and also the reason why I'm really thinking about goalies is I just did a draft yesterday. My first draft of the season was the Puck Hogs League. And this league was crazy. Like so many goalies were drafted so early. I guess just the way the the point setup is set, like a goalie is super valuable if he's going to play a lot of games. Like all the starting goalies were taken basically in the first couple of rounds. And it was really interesting to me to see where goalies were taken in comparison to our goalie tiers. Spoiler, I got John Gibson at the end of round one, which I was pretty happy with, considering how many goalies have been taken already. But we'll get to him in a little bit. So let's see who we have in our goalie tier. So we've got Holpe, Anderson, Hellebuck, and Bobrovsky in our top tier. I'm going to tell you, Brian, right now, I'm happy with that. These were actually four of the first six goalies drafted in my draft yesterday, with the others being Vasilevsky and Rene. And we went into detail on why we don't want to put those two guys, Vasilevsky and Rene, in our top tier. Vasilevsky having struggled at times last season, not someone we could 100% rely upon, even though he's on an amazing team, and Rene being a pending unrestricted free agent and having Saros breathing down his neck. So I'm still very happy with tier one. I assume you are as well? Yeah, tier one still smells good to me. 
Okay, so in tier two, we had Gibson, Vasilevsky, Fleury, Matt Murray, and Rene. And I'm also still good with tier two as well after having looked at it. And by the way, a side note, Anaheim has 52 off-day games next season. And what I mean by an off-day game is a game played on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Sunday. And keep in mind, most NHL, the busiest days are Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And this is actually really high. Like The next highest is 42 off-day games. That's the next highest team. And most teams are actually in the 20s or 30s. So Anaheim like blows everyone away. And in my opinion, that's a reason to push Gibson up your draft lists by a little bit. Like I think that moves into the top of tier two for me. Like generally most fantasy leagues, you could only start two goalies a night. So if like, if you have three good goalies, you could really get hurt by like, there's not as much value in having that third goalie because there's going to be a lot of nights on a busy night of hockey where you're gonna have to sit one of them, even though he's playing, which is really annoying, right? Why are you wasting a roster spot on a good goalie that, that you could probably get a lot in a trade for and you don't even need him because you're going to have to sit one of these guys. But with Gibson playing on the off nights, you could theoretically have three starting goalies on your team, one of them Gibson and get most of their games out of them. So there's a lot of value in gaming the schedule if you could get John Gibson as well as two other goalies and you can still get a lot of those games. So that's a reason to be into John Gibson if you like him, which I do. Anyways, Brian, these five goalies, Gibson, Vasilevsky, Fleury, Murray, and Rene, are you good with all five of these guys remaining in tier two? Yes, I am. Wow. I want to keep things just as they are. Big surprise. I like it how it is. But now we get to tier three. We have Quick, Dubnik, Talbot, Bishop, and now Martin Jones. I feel as strongly as before that Quick and Dubnik should move up to the second tier. Maybe I'm even more emboldened after seeing them ranked fifth and sixth in Scott Cullen's rankings ahead of actually Bobrovsky, Gibson, Murray, Anderson, and Fleury. And Brian, I know you respect Scott Cullen a lot, so I was very interested to see that he had both Jonathan Quick and Devin Dubnik higher than a lot of these goalies who we were lavishing with praise in our almanac. So I'm just throwing it out there. We don't have to do it, but I would be up for moving Quick and Dubnik to join those other guys in tier two. But if you want to leave them in tier three, we could do that too. Yeah, I wouldn't be okay with moving them up to tier two. And it's not because I have a problem with the difference in quality of the goalies themselves. I think Quick and Dubnik as individuals compare reasonably well enough with a lot of the goalies in tier two, but it's the quality of their team that really differentiates them. And I guess you could say that John Gibson being on the Ducks and in tier two, and the Ducks are closer to the Kings and Wild. Uh, who are represented in Tier 3, then uh, they are close to the Lightning, Penguins, Golden Knights, and Predators who are in Tier 2. Uh, you can make that argument, but I like Gibson's chances to be an above-average goaltender enough to put him up there in Tier 2, despite his team quality not being quite as good. And those off nights that you were mentioning for Gibson really help. So that is why I'm going to happily leave Quick and Dubnik in Tier 3 with their own numbers and teams comparing better with uh, Cam Talbot's Oilers and Ben Bishop's Stars. I think those are better overall comparisons. If anything, Elon, I wonder if we should be moving Martin Jones all the way up to Tier 2 for the quality of his team playing in San Jose. Are the Sharks good enough? Are they close enough to the Lightning Penguins, Golden Knights, and Predators to lift up what is expected to be an average on the whole goaltending performance from Martin Jones into Tier 2 territory? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question because we have Vasilevsky there, who we've never seen him put up an amazing season. Overall, his numbers were better than Jones last year. I think all these guys we have in Tier 2 had better numbers, aside from Matt Murray, actually, who had a very down year last year. But we decided to give him a break because he was dealing with injuries and other off-ice stuff. And he had been so good the couple years before, and the Penguins are such a good team. 
I mean, if you want to, but I'm okay to leave Jones in tier three, actually. That, that would be quite a jump for a goalie that's never really had uh, really above average save percentage. So if Jones isn't going to tier two, then absolutely I'm a no for Quick and Dubnik as well. All right, so we're leaving tier three the same. I think I know you're probably thinking, Elon, why are you wasting my time with this? I think the listeners tweeted us hashtag. What, what were your hashtags from before? Nobody remembers, but now you team can say- Team rounded or team specific. <laughs> so now you could be like, Team rehash to, to uh, let us know if you agree that we should rehash these goalie rankings just to make sure we're because people are going into their drafts and they really like to use our rankings and we want to make sure that we still stand by them. I think uh, team redux will work well. Yeah, well, redux. it's because I already wrote the episode preview and that's the wording I used. Okay, <laughs> so in tier four currently we have no longer Martin Jones, so we have Ranta, Allen, Rask, and Mike Smith. So, Brian, just FYI, I'm not saying we have to change anything, but your suggestion of Tuka Rask being in Tier 4, that is like a very hot take. He was the seventh goalie taken in my PHL draft, and also Scott Cullen has him as his seventh-ranked goalie, which would put Tuka Rask in the same tier as guys like Quick, Dubnik, Talbot, Ben Bishop. Like, I feel like saying that you'd rather have Ben Bishop over Tuka Rask, to me, seems a little, little off, but at the same time, you justified it so well in the Boston chapter and also in Schmorgoliesborg when you said that you feel like Rask actually is potentially at risk of losing his job or losing a lot of starts to Yaroslav Halak, who might even be a better goalie. So just one last chance, take a sniff, and if you're still happy with it, we'll leave Tuka Rask in Tier 4. Otherwise, we'll move on. I like that you sucked up to me right at the end there saying, I know we already thought this through so completely and perfectly, but, but what about now? And I am rethinking this one through, as you mentioned, uh, like I'm not penalizing Pecorine much for the likelihood of being challenged by UC Saros and uh, the Bruins and Predators are comparable teams, but I still think Rene compares a touch favorably to Rask. At this point, he's still outperforming an average NHL goalie over the last three seasons, whereas Rask has not managed to do that. And as such, I'm less afraid of Rene losing starts to Saros than I am Rask to Halak. Also, Halak is more established than Saros. I feel like he's a little more reliable if he comes in and plays poorly a couple starts. He might have a little bit more leash to take over the job if Rask is really struggling. So if we're talking about moving Rask up a tier, he's on such a great team, so I guess... Let's say that balances out the fact that I have less faith in Rask on an individual level as a goalie than any of the other tier three inhabitants. Uh, For anyone who has lost the plot, uh, those include Quick, Dubnik, Talbot, and Bishop. Uh, And Jones, right. We just moved Jones there. So I can get with it. I can get with Rask moving up to tier three, though I am sad if it means I have to give up my swing. Like if you weren't asking me to move Rask, Elon, and if I was feel or if I was feeling stubborn, I'd be fine. Like I would never even consider moving Rask. But it's also reasonable to think that Rask, like Jones, is pretty well insulated from the backup challenging because the team in front of him should help clean up several of the messes he might make. Uh, yeah, I, I really liked my tier four took a Rask, but I I will as long as it's as as it's clear that I am acquiescing here to move Rask up to tier three. Okay, Brian. Guess what? You're still making a swing, okay? Tuka Rask, like I said, was the seventh-ranked goalie, both by Scott Cullen and in my draft I just did. So popular consensus is Rask is even better than Tier 3. A lot of people would think of him as similar to Pecorine. Like you said, we still have him below Pecorine. I think you're doing the right thing here. This is a goalie who could potentially have the most wins of any goalie in the league. And, like, the advice is, like, it's fun for you to take a swing, but there are real-life consequences to this. (laughs) And you're telling people that they don't need to worry about grabbing, like, you know, I don't know, like, it does feel like they're going to 
going to use these tears and you need to have Tuka Rask in the right place and not let people expect that he's going to fall so far or basically tell them you're not going to draft Tuka Rask. Because if you have Tuka Rask in tier four, what you're really saying is don't draft him. You'd rather have Cam Talbot, which to me is like, come on, like really similar. Cam Talbot's not going to lose his job. I have more faith in Cam Talbot playing 65 games than I do Tuka Rask. Yeah, and who's going to have more wins if Tuka Rask plays 55 and Talbot plays 65? It might be about even. Yeah. All right. So we've made the change. I think I think it's a good call. I'm sorry, Brian, if you're sad about it. You could change your mind by the end of the show, but you have to say it on the show. No, like, weird, like, putting it in the notes or something. Okay. The other guy I want to discuss that's currently in Tier 4 is Jake Allen. This is the opposite. I want to know if you want to move him down. So Allen has been suffering from back spasms. He missed the start of training camp. The latest update from Roto World is that he's expected to be back sooner on the ice than originally expected. So that's good. Maybe this is something we don't even need to worry about. But also, there's a goalie in the Blues organization that we didn't mention in the Almanac or Rochemore Goalies Board. But he's been getting some buzz lately, and his name is Billy Huso. So, Brian, like, who is this Huso guy? And could he be someone that could challenge Chad Johnson for the backup spot to start the season? And maybe also someone that could pose a more formidable challenge to Jake Allen at some point during the year than we expected Johnson to. Like, I feel like we said Jake Allen, even though maybe he's not that great, St. Louis is such a good team. And also, there's no chance that this Chad Johnson can challenge him for starts. He's freaking Chad Johnson. But now, if you're going to tell me that Billy Huso is actually a good goalie, and that would kind of change everything. So who's this Huso guy, and do we need to worry about him? And also, do we need to worry about this Jake Allen back spasms issue and potentially move him down a tier? Well, so I'm looking at our tier four, and the teams represented there were Arizona with Ronta, Allen with St. Louis, Jones with San Jose, Rask with Boston, Smith with Calgary. And in the last 20 minutes, we've moved Martin Jones up out of that tier because he plays for San Jose. It's a really good team. We've moved Tuka Rask up out of that tier because Boston is a good enough team to warrant it. And now here we are talking about Jake Allen, who I've liked a lot going into this year as an under-the-radar guy who's been left for dead by a lot of poolies, but still plays on what's likely to be one of the most competitive teams in the NHL this year. I yeah. also... Maybe let me just jump in. Like, just to be clear, all I'm saying, all I want you to do is tell me if I need to think about Billy Huso or the back spasms. Like, well, otherwise, no, I, I was ve- like, I was very happy to have him where he's, I get that St. Louis is a really good team, but, like, I'm just concerned about these little things. But I'm happy for you to just tell me, Elon, don't worry about <laughs> it. It's cool. He's still the starter. There's also the fact that he was losing starts to Carter Hutton last year, which was concerning, you know? like Okay, but I'm just trying to draw a line here between the movement we've seen out of Tier 4, where Jones, Allens, and Rask probably all reasonably belong in a similar goaltending tier and now you've got two guys gone and Allen's there alone left for dead like I I feel like a lot of people have just given up on him so you're saying no you're saying leave him in tier four you're not worried about Billy Huso (laughs) and this back spasms thing because I'm also I get worried about I get worried about goalie injuries a little bit. Maybe you could tell me that that's too bad. We're going to talk about a couple other goalie injuries later on that are concerning me. Like when I'm going into my fantasy draft, I want to make sure I've got a starting goalie that I can like rely on all season long. I don't want to hear about some like back spasms. I don't want to hear about a new challenger in Billy Huso. And like, I know you're comparing Allen to Raskin Jones. And I know you say for both Raskin Jones, or you've said at different times that they are maybe going to potentially lose the job or like they're vulnerable. Like Jake Allen's the only one of the three who's actually lost the job for long stretches of time. First to Brian Elliott back in the day. And then last year to Carter Hutton. But okay, I'll let you speak. Whatever you say, I'm not going to argue with you. 
I'm so you said that I think we're not going to drop Allen out of tier four. And if anything, if we're if we're following the same logic we did for Raskin Jones, we're almost obliged to move him up. And I'm just going to remind everyone, Elon, you thought Rask's job as number one in Boston was over last season. There were times that we thought Jones was out, too. Like these guys have all faced challenges. Yes, Allen is the one who lost the job uh, for the longest out of the group, but He's the only one who had a backup come in and actually play well enough, long enough to actually steal the job. So I don't think that reflects on Jake Allen. I think it reflects more on the lightning in a bottle that Carter Hutton was able to catch versus Hudobin's not lasting quite as long and Dell's barely being there at all. So I'm saying logically, all the reasoning we've used to move Raskin Jones up, maybe we should be using I'm not going to go there because I'm not trying to move our goalie tiers too much but I still think they kind of all belong together and if you're picking him as a tier four goalie he should be at the top of tier four I like that St. Louis you look at what they did like if you want to get a signal for whether he's going to be challenged or not they brought in Chad Johnson that's not a number two goalie that's going to challenge for starts I remember reading some quotes saying how confident the organization was now happy they were to just give him the reins and see if he can take it Uh, that said if Allen does struggle And even then, I think if he does, his leash is probably pretty long. But if Alan does struggle, then I do wonder, here we go, Elon, what you've been waiting for. If Ville Husso has at least as good a chance as Chad Johnson to take the helm or to play more games than Chad Johnson, if there is a long period of time for which Alan is riding pine. Ville Husso was drafted right at the start of the fourth round back in 2014, just completed his second season in North America, in which the 23-year-old put up a very nice 922 save percentage with AHL San Antonio. I don't think Husso is going to be the guy who gets the backup job out of camp. It seems more likely that his development path will be helped by playing more often in the minors than sitting on the bench while the St. Louis Blues attempt to hand the reins over to Jake Allen. But if Allen does miss extended time or suck for an extended time and Chad Johnson isn't quite cutting it, it would be very fun to see what Huso can do. And I can't see Chad Johnson having a very long leash, seeing the way that last year went for St. Louis. They know, or I feel like they know every game is precious. So why not, if Chad Johnson isn't working out, throw Ville Husso in there, see if he gets it. But to go back to the start of my take, Jake Allen, I have faith that he's going to hold down this number one job for much of the year. Okay. Because, yeah, another thing is, like, when we're comparing these three goalies, right, Jake Allen's the one who sucked last year for a lot of the year, as opposed to Jones and Rask, who were solid. I know you looked at underlying numbers in short goalies boards. Okay. And, and as far as the back spasms, like, what do you think about my concern <laughs> to draft a goalie who's having injury concerns? Like, if I have a draft tomorrow, you're like you're laughing at me, but other people are no. having this thought. Like, right, I'm no, the I'm voice. not. I'm not laughing. It's because you've had to bring it up three times because I keep forgetting to address it. And it is a legitimate concern. Uh, Bottom line, I, I'm not a doctor. Like I wish I, obviously everybody knows that that's a facetious, cynical thing to say. Uh, But my take at this point of the preseason is, well, it's this point of the preseason. It's September 16th. We've still got a good uh, two, three weeks before we actually hit the ice. And I'm more interested in seeing what happens the week before. If you're drafting today and you need to draft with knowing Jake Allen has back spasms, draft him, whatever. If anything, it takes him a week or two. Like that's the the worst, the likeliest worst case scenario is that Jake Allen just doesn't start the season quite as early as the rest of the league comes in a couple weeks. Of course, the 
absolute worst case scenario is he misses the entire season. But these are things that could happen for any goalie. I'd still be happy to take the same swing on Jake Allen in my draft tomorrow with back spasms as I would hope to take uh, with a healthy Jake Allen a week out before the season. Okay. That's all I wanted to hear. Just to ease our concerns. You're saying, don't worry about it. Worst Do you case. agree though? I agree. Sure. But I think this back spasm thing isn't too serious, but at the same time, it does make me nervous when I go into a draft, I might let someone else take him, but also at the same time, maybe that's a good opportunity. If everyone else is so concerned about these back spasms and he's falling too far, then you can be like, eh, it's not going to be a big deal. Like in my draft yesterday, Brian, this is a, not a goalie, but Patrice Bergeron was falling so, so far because he has injury concerns right now. I think it's back spasms also with him, if I remember correctly. But anyway, like, so fine, maybe I'll lose some time from Bergeron at the start of the year for the worst, because this hasn't even been announced that Bergeron's going to miss time. He's just missing some preseason in time so i ended up getting really great value so maybe i wasn't going to reach for him with this injury concern and same with jake allen but okay we're saying leave him where he is i'm with you so okay next we go to tier five i think it gets interesting here i agree with everything so far i think we're doing a great job hope you're having a good time hope you listeners are having a good time coming on this ride with me <laughs> this was my idea and you can let me know if you thought it was a bad idea but we're in tier five we've currently got lungfist elliot price and crawford then tier six has varlamov luongo and schneider and then tier 7B, we split up tier 7, so we have some backups in tier 7A. But tier 7B has Hutton, Anderson, and Markstrom, and Howard, actually, as the worst starters left. So just to repeat that again, Longfist, Elliott, Price, Crawford in 5, then Varlamov, Luongo, Schneider in 6, and then Hutton, Anderson, Markstrom, Howard in 7. And Brian, like, I think there's a few things we have to look at here. First of all, more injury stuff. This Corey Crawford news, it isn't great. Like, I saw a tweet from Charlie Rumeloitis who's a beat writer in Chicago. I hope I pronounced his name right. And he said, Corey Crawford reveals that he was dealing with a concussion last season. And he's quoted as saying, things have been progressing, but right now I'm not ready to go yet. And, you know, this is not back spasms hoping to be back in a week. Like, he's still not ready to go. Concussions can be serious. You never know how long they're going to take. In my draft yesterday, I had the decision between Crawford and Luongo for my second goalie. And my gut told me to go against our tiers. Because, like I said, we have Crawford in Tier 5 and Luongo in Tier 6. And I said, no, I'm going to go for Luongo because he's healthy. And also, like, even looking beyond the health issue, yeah, like, Luongo's maybe at risk to lose some starts. But Crawford has this injury concern. And also, Chicago is, like, not a good team. And Florida looks like they're going to be a really good team. So, yeah, like, I remember last year, you know, we thought Carey Price, don't worry, like, Carey Price, he's such a good goalie, even though it looks like Montreal's going to be a train wreck and they have no defense, Carey Price will figure it out. And now we have Corey Crawford. Even if he does play, he might still have some lingering effects. He might have some rust. Plus, this Chicago defense looks a lot to me like the Montreal defense looked last year. So I wonder if we're walking right into a Montreal Canadiens scenario this year with Corey Crawford. So I just feel like Corey Crawford is too high. I think he's on a bad team. And he has injury concerns. I know he's been a good goalie for a while, but if I learned one thing from our disaster of last year's projections, it's that it's not enough for me. Like, I feel like if you're on a really bad team, then you can't be someone you rely on in fantasy. And I think his great save percentage that he's been putting up for so long is at risk, just like Carey Price turned out to be. Okay, so your proposal is? To move Crawford down. Okay, and that would put him alongside Varlamov, Luongo, and Schneider. Yeah, exactly. Because I was deciding between Luongo and Crawford, and I took Luongo, but I'm not saying maybe someone could make an argument for Crawford, but I feel like the fact that I had to think about it means that they're more in the same tier. Unless you think that I made the wrong call, or unless you think that, you know, like something is wrong with me, but like that was my experience, and that experience tells me that those guys are in the same tier, if not Luongo higher, since I did end up choosing Luongo. So you can tell me I made a dumb choice. 
No, I'm not going to tell you that. I think it makes sense. I'd rather the guy who's going to for sure start the season in a better team situation in Luongo than Crawford, who's got a cloudy injury situation and is going to be playing for what's likely to be not a very good team in Chicago. So right now we have Crawford alongside Lungvist, Elliott, and Price. And you're wondering if he's closer to Varlamov, Luongo, and Schneider, who are three guys that we had sort of grouped together as... Uh, players who are going to start the year for their team, but then might be in trouble before long, uh, whether it's because of injury or a, a backup challenging. It still feels a little soon to move Corey Crawford anywhere. Like I want to see where he's at again, like Alan, when we're a week away from opening night, but if you're drafting now, uh, he's saying he's not ready to go yet. And there's been so much cloudiness in any of his injury return timelines going back to last year. And so, yeah, Crawford does belong with Luongo, Varlamov, and Schneider as a player who could miss a somewhat significant time or see it starts being eaten into for one reason or another. Okay, so good. We agree. That was fun. Yeah, I feel like they're similar, right? Like, I, we're worried about Luongo getting injured. Like, I'm not even worried too much about Reimer, like, stealing the job from Luongo unless Luongo really falls off. Like, Luongo's been the starting goalie for a couple of years. I'm just more worried about him getting injured and then maybe struggling when he comes back. And I feel like it's, yeah, similar with Crawford at this point. Like, I'm worried about him getting injured and also with the team situation. I think they belong together. So good. Next goalie that I want to talk about is Corey Schneider, also dealing with health issues. Apparently, he's dealing with a hip injury that bothered him all last season. Like, news came out at the end of the season that he was bothered all last season it's still bothering him here's a tweet from mike morial quoting schneider from thursday schneider said hard to pinpoint a time when i could return right now i'm more focused on the immediacy of feeling better every step every stage and doing the last things i need to do to feel game ready hopefully it'll be sooner than later so not as bad as Corey crawford saying like i have no idea he's saying he's working on it. he's trying to get better he actually did go to practice yesterday though he didn't finish the practice but clearly Corey schneider is like on the mend and might be fine but at the same time, like, I'm I'm really concerned. Like, because he sucked last year. We saw that he was dealing with this hip injury. He's still dealing with it now. So it's not as if he had this injury and then he had some surgery, which fixed it up. And now he's like a new man. Like, this is a guy who's still dealing with it in training camp. So I feel like he's going to continue to deal with it probably throughout the season. And if last season was any indication, Corey Schneider sucks now. He's not good. Like, unless you tell me that his health situation is vastly improved, I have no reason to expect him to be turning himself around and becoming a good goalie. And he's got Keith Kincaid breathing down his neck, like more so than Carter Hutton. Like Keith Kincaid stole the job for so long, like for basically the whole second half of the season. So I feel like at this point, it doesn't feel right to me. It's the sniff test, right? Like if I'm choosing between like uh, Schneider or Luongo or Varlamov, I feel like Schneider is in a whole other tier. Like I'd rather put Schneider down with like the worst goalies that you'd want to have that could be a starter like i want to move schneider down is basically what i'm saying like actually i kind of feel like schneider might belong more like we have this tier 8a with grice Leonard, scott darling and Morazic. so sort of like four goalies on two teams where we don't know who the starter is going to be and i feel like at this point like i feel that way about schneider and kincaid like while we did the almanac we were saying well schneider took the job over in the playoffs so it's probably his job to start the year so it's not as much of an unknown but now with this injury i really feel like it's pretty much 50 50 if he'll get starts that's why i want to move him down but if you want to tell me i'm overreacting to this injury news just like i was with jake allen or i wasn't really but just i wanted to get your opinion then we can leave him there what do you think about Corey schneider now that we've heard that his hip is still bothering him so if it weren't for this injury news, would you have changed your mind? No, I liked it where it was. It's this hip thing. It's yeah. driving me crazy. So I'm not, yeah, I can't get too invested. The fact that it's out in the open a few weeks ahead of time means, you know, players are just coming back from summer 
or whatever they were working out beforehand, getting into game shape. I feel like some stuff is going to happen. It doesn't feel like something that usually happens. Like, I don't feel like we're often talking about starting goalies like Allen and Schneider having back spasms and hip problems. And of course, Corey Schneider does have some injury history, but I am not going to say that this is enough yet for Corey Schneider to be moved down with guys like Rice, Liner, Mrazek, and Darling. And that's because I still expect him to be opening night starter. I don't think he's quite being challenged enough by Kincaid to have that spot up for grabs. Last year's situation in New Jersey where Kincaid took over late and then Schneider took the net back mid-playoff series and then played well before the Devils were bounced reminds me kind of the Andrew Hammond, Craig Anderson send scenario back in 2014-15 where a similar thing played out. Hammond took the job, helped the team make the playoffs. By the time the sends turned back to Anderson in the playoffs after Hammond didn't play so well in the first couple games, uh, Anderson was great, but it was too late to avoid getting bounced by the Habs. So the difference there, of course, was that Craig Anderson gave up his job because he was hurt initially, and Corey Schneider gave up his job because, well, it was a mix of injury and inconsistent play, and there could have been a chicken and egg scenario there too. Look, I'm not optimistic about Corey Schneider this year. In our almanac, I piled on him as being a terribly unreliable starter. And if he was named Carter Hutton, I probably would have piled on him even more. Like he still has some name value to me as a guy whose upside we know has been so good. But I think those days are behind him. And what we just want from him is to be a reasonable reasonably close to league average while not blowing starts left and right for you. I'm going to keep him where he is. Ask me again in a week though. Like if I'm drafting today, I'm drafting him the same way, maybe at the bottom of his tier, but still not quite as far down as the laner, Grace, Mrazek, and Darling types. Interesting. Okay, so I guess we can leave. And I was actually suggesting to go down two tiers, right? Like we have tier six with Varlamov, Luongo, Crawford, and Schneider. Tier seven has Hutton, Anderson, Markstrom, and Howard. Then it's tier eight where we have these guys, Grice, Leonard, Darling, and Mrazek. So the last one I want to bring up to you is, we don't have to talk about it actually that much. Like Carter Hutton, I just to me, it feels like it's weird that he's there with Anderson, Markstrom, and Howard as like the worst of the worst for sure starters, just because you've got Ottawa, Vancouver, and Detroit. Like you just ranted about how terrible Ottawa is going to be. You've got Vancouver and Detroit just like as bad. And then we have Buffalo, a team on the rise. A lot of people think they might be able to challenge for the playoffs, even if you don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I still feel like they're going to be a team that's going to be able to get some wins. They've got Eichel. They've got Dalene. They brought in Skinner. They've got Ristolainen. They got Sam Reinhart. Like Casey Middlestat's coming in. Like I feel like this is a team that people are excited about. And it seems odd to me that we have Corey Schneider, for example, in a tier above Carter Hutton. So the last thing I'll suggest to you is do we maybe move Carter Hutton up? Like if there was news that the Sabres were expecting Linus Allmark to be a serious challenger, then that would be different. But at this point, like we haven't really heard that. Like they're saying that Carter Hutton's come in and he's going to be the guy next year. And then eventually over time, Linus Allmark will take the net. Yeah, so I think where you and I principally disagree is how good a team Buffalo is going to be this year. Uh, I think, I feel pretty confident saying Buffalo is going to be around the same place as the bottom teams like Ottawa, Vancouver, Detroit, Montreal. I don't think they're significantly better than any of those teams to the point that I want their goalie uh, a whole lot more. So yeah, so I'm leaving Hutton where he is. And I know you call him the sure starter, Elon, but if it wasn't for Jake Allen's injury or Corey Schneider's injury, those guys would be just as sure starters as Carter Hutton. And I, at this point, I expect them both to be healthy. So I'm not willing to say, yeah, Carter Hutton is such a sure starter on a good enough team that he deserves to be moved up. I think Buffalo is going to struggle more than you think this year. 
Okay, wow. But like the same as Ottawa, Vancouver, and Detroit. Like we'll leave him there if you want. But I just feel like Buffalo is going to take a step forward. If I recall, Dom said on our podcast yesterday that all of his number crunching told him that he thought Buffalo was going to be a lot better next year. And that's why he was trying to tell us that people won't be mad at him. Wait, what was it? What was the player that we were saying he had? Oh, yeah. So people won't be mad at him when he has Casey Middlestat ranked low because he was saying that overall he thinks Buffalo is going to be good. But all right, let's leave him and see. I think that Carter Hutton would be a steal to get him where you have him projected around Craig Anderson. Like in my draft yesterday, which was definitely a reach, I agree. Carter Hutton was drafted like so, so high above Carey Price. By the way, so what a world where Carter Hutton's drafted higher than Carey Price, but I think that Buffalo is going to win more games than Montreal. You disagree? No, uh, I, di- I don't say I disagree. I just don't say I don't think they're better enough to to warrant Carter Hutton moving up. Like, do Buffalo's a bottom 10 team next year. Okay, Brian, a couple more quick things to talk about with goalies before we move on. So first of all, Robin Leonard had a story written about him in The Athletic where he talked about his drug addiction and bipolar diagnosis, both things that we didn't know about or I didn't know about before reading this. It was really powerful stuff. I'd recommend people check it out. Uh, as far as fantasy-wise now, or like just NHL-wise, Robin Leonard obviously was signed by the Islanders. We assumed he was going to challenge Thomas Grice for starts after knowing that he's been struggling with all these issues and he's apparently better now. Does that change your opinion of him and your projection of whether or not he's going to be able to take the number one job on the Islanders? It doesn't really affect how I think of him. But first off, it was an incredible article. And from what I know, it was unlocked on The Athletic. So you can go read it for free, even if you're not a subscriber. And I highly suggest it is, is it is a window into how like these professional hockey players in high pressure, high intensity situations are not being adequately supported by NHL teams in some ways, although Leonard had very positive things to say about the NHL's program and about Sabres GM Jason Botterill, but he also mentioned how there was a team that pretty much just piled on him, saying, how can you possibly be a good teammate with all these problems you're dealing with? And, you know, when someone's going through a problem, uh, that's probably not the best thing to do, especially uh, Leonard's situation sounded very extreme with high stakes. And so it's disconcerting, although unfortunately not surprising, to see that sort of thing happening in the league. And hopefully it uh, helps shed some light. A very brave thing of Robin Lander to do to share that because he had nothing to gain from putting that all out there and a lot to lose. And of course, now we're all going to look at his performance this season through that lens of, oh, you know, this guy has this whole story that carries a stigma with it. How is that affecting? So I kind of, uh, like, I don't feel totally comfortable weighing in on the fantasy implications of Robin Lander's mental health. Um, but I, I guess if I had to offer a take, it would be that I wonder if we've really seen like a, a clean and sober Robin Lehner play goalie or how often we've seen that and uh, and, and a Robin Lehner that feels good. And so I, I don't know how that will affect his game, not having the same habits that, and, and addictions that he once had. Like there's just... Yeah, like you can, I, you could probably sense my discomfort in trying to figure this out. I don't think it changes anything. I think if Robin Lehner can play well, then he's going to have a good shot at getting starts. If he doesn't play well, he won't. I, I think it's just about as simple as that. And trying to come to any conclusion about the the sort of things he offered and and shared with everyone in that article is probably um, not taking seriously enough the effects of mental health. Is that is that fair? I think that's fair. Like, I think let's let's put it this way. We're going to give him a clean slate for next year and see how he does. And, you know, so when you're projecting him for next year, maybe you don't want to take so much into account how he did the last couple of years. Let's see how he does. He's got a chance for the job. Thomas Grice, 
clearly doesn't have a stronghold on that job. So Leonard has a shot, like you said. Okay, one other thing I wanted to say about goalies, I just want to throw it out there because a couple of people mentioned it to me, like, oh, how could you not mention Carter Hart on Sport Goalies Borg? So I just want to say that the Philadelphia Flyers have a really good high pedigree prospect named Carter Hart, who is going to probably start the season in the minors. They've got Elliot and Neuverth, but as we know, Elliot and Neuverth will likely both, or at least one of them will get injured. And I could see a scenario, maybe it's Stoli the goalie who gets called up or Alex Lyon, but there's a scenario potentially where Carter Hart could get called up, especially if the Philly starting goalie is injured long-term. And maybe Hart could take the job like Hellebuck did over Michael Hutchinson did a few years back in Winnipeg when Pavlik went down. So I don't know, if you're in one of those types of leagues where you could I don't know, put a guy in an NA spot if they're not on your team. I don't know what type of situation you're in, but like I see a scenario where Carter Hart could be a sneaky goalie at some point this season if he gets called up. If he gets called up for Philly, for whatever reason, grab him. Like, don't assume he's going to get called up and be a backup. But we'll talk about it a lot on the show when we get to him. I'm good to move on from goalies. How about you, Brian? I am as well. I'm just thinking, Cam Ward, do we need to move him up? If we're thinking, just keep him in mind, at least at the end of your draft, if you can add, if you drafted Corey Crawford and no one else drafts Cam Ward, throw Crawford in IR, grab Cam Ward right away so that you can be ready in case Cam Ward does get significant time starting. And I'm also just going to, like, I know you wanted all these goalie thoughts to be quick, but when you bring up these ideas, I, I have opinions. And I don't I don't agree with your Philadelphia take. I think if Brian Elliott goes down, Mikhail Neuverth, it's still a, a pretty good goalie when he's healthy. I think you're a year ahead of schedule with Carter Hart. Maybe you're right. A name I wanted people to know. And regarding Cam Ward, the thing is like, ugh, he's going to be so bad. Like if Cam Ward's the starter, like look at what Anton Forsberg did last year for yeah. Chicago. It was terrible. Yeah. So you're getting someone who's going to get you starts, right? He's going to get saves if those count in your league, he'll get you a win here or there. But if you're going to get dinged for goals against, then yeah, he might not be worth the trouble. And also I could see like Cam Ward losing the job to Anton Forsberg or like them fighting for starts. Like Cam Ward is not the that, guy. That... I'm not going to go that far. Like what did Anton Forsberg do last year to, to earn another shot? Well, some, like, I mean, Cam Ward's not going to play every game. So if he has a bad game, it's the same like what happened in Carolina, right? Like Cam Ward, if he goes on a good run, he'll play. If he has a bad game, you play the other goalie, then he'll play until he does badly. Like, I just don't know if Cam Ward, you could ever call him a sure thing to hold a job, especially on such a, like, I don't like the Chicago team. Like, maybe I'll be wrong about this take, but their defense looks so, so weak. Like I said, we have Duncan Keith, we have Eric Gustafsson, who might be a good sleeper. And like, no one really else, like Seabrook's still there, I guess like, or whatever version of Brent Seabook still exists. Brian, we still didn't talk about the Ottawa Senators side of the Carlson trade. We really went down this road of goalies. I hope people enjoyed it. But let's now talk about what happens with the Ottawa Senators now that they lose their top power play and elite defenseman. Clearly, the obvious beneficiary is Thomas Shabbat, who we've got to imagine is now going to be the top power play defenseman, right? And so you put him down for 35 points. I put him down for 40 points in the Almanac. I feel like we were both assuming, or at least I know I was assuming that Carlson would leave at some point. So I was building in some extra points to assume that. But now that Carlson's gone for the whole season, do we need to change Thomas Shabbat's projection? Does he become a good sleeper for next year as a potential top power play defenseman? We don't know who's going to be there on that top power play with him. If Duchesne and Stone are there, that'd be pretty good. Who knows how long they'll last since they're unrestricted free agents and they're going to be rebuilding and Ottawa could easily trade them anytime. Yeah, so I'll also add some points for Thomas Shabbat. He's going to be running a top power play that still has Matt Duchesne and Mark Stone. And I guess the other two guys are Bobby Ryan 
Ryan Dzingle, Brady Kachuk, some mix of those three, but 40 points seems like a comfortable floor now for Thomas Shabbat now that he's likely going to be mm. a top power play quarterback. I'd love to give him a few more, but I have grave concerns over how successful a Shabbat CC pairing is going to be at ever getting the puck out of their own zone at even strength. I'm good to say that Shabbat could get 40, but to give him a 40-point floor is insane. Like Insane is going a little far, don't you think? Like, I mean, a 40-point floor, like, Justin Falk was the top power play defenseman on Carolina last year, and he had 30-something points. Like, definitely just being the top power play defenseman, especially on a team like the Sens, no way that's, like, guaranteed at least 40 points. You don't even have to think about it. Like, I think that you and I might have a different opinion of what the word floor means. Like, I think that would be a very nice season for him. But also, I don't he, think I think we 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 came to an understanding on the Almac of what the word floor means. So okay, so maybe it's a little rich, thirty-five point floor. But I, I think forty is a lot likelier now than it was before. And I like I would be drafting him as a guy who who uh, yeah, I think he could get forty. I, like I guess I'm confident he can get to forty. Is that less insane? I'm backing off to appease you. No, I mean that's I agree. I have projected for forty also. Just to say a forty point floor to me means that like you're a hundred percent certain or ninety five percent certain that he's going to get forty at least, and that seems crazy to me. I could see him easily getting thirty, right? Like he's never done anything before. We don't even know if he'll hold the job all season. He's Thomas Shabbat. Uh, yeah, but Thomas Shabbat is pretty good from what we've seen. Like he, he was getting on the fringe of fantasy relevance already into this year. And at times last year, uh, just with some small performances he had while Eric Carlson was still in the lineup. Yeah, I think we're on the same page or maybe we're just arguing about semantics here. I think Thomas Shabbat is someone to look at deep in your drafts, but don't expect him to be like a guarantee for sure, especially because Duchesne and Stone will be gone and who knows if this team will be able to score some goals. But now let's talk about Duchesne and Mark Stone. So we put Matt Duchesne for 65 and Mark Stone for 70 points in our almanac. Those definitely seem high now to me now that Eric Carlson is out of the picture and they really are the only two players aside from maybe Shabbat who I could imagine having some fantasy relevance on the team. Do you want to make any changes to Duchesne and Stone now that they don't have Eric Carlson feeding them the puck? Yeah, when you lose an elite power play quarterback, you're going to lose power play goals. And Shabbat has upside in that role, but he's still a rookie learning the ropes and is sure to look pretty green at times early on. So it could be a a rough start to the year as everyone settles into their new role on a power play that can't just be like, okay, uh, give it to Eric and he'll figure something out. They are missing the heart of that offense and power play. So I'm going to take both Duchesne and Stone down to the low 60s, uh, just because who is there in Ottawa to help get the puck out of their zone and to help have controlled entries into the offensive zone? It's honestly going to be very hard for any Ottawa senator to break 65 points without 65. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, good one. David saying in the chat room, stay away from both. I will point out that, like I said, both Matt Duchesne and Mark Stone are going to be unrestricted free agents at the end of the year. And as Brian said, Ottawa has now admitted they're in a rebuild. I don't think they're signing these guys to long-term contracts. I'd love to see them do it, but I just don't see it happening, which means they could get traded. And all of a sudden, they could both be very valuable in their new situation. So I would definitely not stay away from them. I think there's some value in Ottawa as like the guys on the team, plus upside. But also, you know, a couple years ago, I really got burned because I was holding Matt Duchesne in a league where he was still on Colorado and not getting good deployment. I was really hoping he would get traded at the trade deadline and it didn't happen. And I really should have dropped him like a long time before because he was doing nothing on the abs that year. But okay, so you're dropping them both to the low 60s. I agree with you. 
so Brian, Chris Tierney comes in and I feel like he might have an impact or as much of an impact as someone can have on this team. That's not Duchesne or Stone because we have news that JG Pajot suffered a torn Achilles tendon. He's expected to miss at least six months. I think Pajot was the guy who was projected to be the second line center or maybe Tierney was going to challenge him for that spot. Like I said, Tierney was the third line center on the Sharks last year. Now, got to imagine Tierney is in the top six next year, centering the second line. Maybe they even give him Mark Stone to play with them? Probably not, but I don't know. Maybe they want to split Duchesne and Stone and somewhat spread around the offense. But either way, a top six player that maybe even gets a a chance at some power play time can't be completely fantasy irrelevant, right? So I feel like we have to at least put a number down for Chris Tierney as opposed to before when we didn't even mention him in the Almanac. Yeah, I mean, I guess we could. I don't know. I don't have a lot of faith that Chris Tierney is going to be able to find himself in a fantasy relevant position uh you know it's not like Peugeot now that he's out opens up this spot where big offensive numbers can be produced and Tierney is not even the heir apparent to that second line center position Zach Smith could still end up as the second line center or even Logan Brown for that matter and again anyone as second line center in Ottawa is not likely to be flanked by greatness maybe you get Mark Stone uh, if you're able to, if the, if the Sens split their lines. But if not, the best you're looking at is someone like Bobby Ryan or Brady Kachuk. And for a player who doesn't have a whole lot of skill to start with, I'm not that interested. Like okay. Bobby Ryan is probably the cutoff for fantasy-relevant Ottawa Senators. And I see Chris Tierney being below that. That's fair. But I think one more guy we need to talk about before we close the book on this Eric Carlson trade is the guy you talked about right at the start in your rant, the guy being paraded around as the new future superstar of the Ottawa Senators. We actually didn't even mention him in the Almanac, or at least we didn't put a projection for him. Brady Kachuk himself. I think we got to put down a number now. The Sens are doing everything in their power to convince their fans that the future is bright. And a lot of it is because they have this future superstar, Brady Kachuk. So I feel like he's probably going to make the team, right? And I imagine if he makes the team, they're going to put him in the top six. They're probably going to give him significant power play time. Is there any chance that the 19-year-old can be fantasy relevant next year? The plan seemed to be for Kachuk to play in London after leaving college, but you're right that now it's seeming more and more likely Kachuk is going to be on the roster opening night. I'm not optimistic for how much he's going to be able to accomplish both as a rookie right out of his draft year and as a member of the Ottawa Senators. So uh, 40 points? 40 points. Like, this is a pace, right? So you're saying of the games he'll play, he's going to put up like basically half point per game? That's my thought, yeah. Okay. I'll go 45. I'll be okay. generous. I, I, I just feel like the opportunity will be there. It'll be hard not to at least get a point every couple of games, so I'll give him 45. But yeah. I like Shabbat more than Kachuk. How about that? Yeah, for sure. Well, especially because D are so scarce, especially a top power play defenseman, and especially someone with a 40-point floor, which I don't think he has. But yeah, a defenseman who can get you 40 points, including a bunch on the power play, like a whole other tier, for sure. But yeah, Brady Kachuk, if you're in a super deep league, even in a one-year league, don't forget about him because he might be one of the few you know significant power play getters that are available at a really late point in your draft. Okay, Brian. We still had a plan. This has been a long show, but hey, it's the preseason. We got to give people what they want to hear. We had this plan where we were going to go through some players and look at their average draft positions on Yahoo and give our opinions of which players are maybe getting drafted a bit too high or a bit too low. So then when you go into your drafts, you could maybe see that some of these players might be good sleepers or maybe people that you want to avoid because they're going too high. I always find this a very useful exercise before I go into a draft to get a sense of where people are getting drafted, who I could earmark to maybe wait a little bit for, 
maybe not wait too much for because I know they're going to fall, but I really do want to get them. So I've got the Yahoo rankings up in front of me and I've come up with some players. And how about I just go down the list and then as we go down, maybe I'll throw a name, you'll throw a name. We'll throw some names out. No super deep analyses, but we'll give you guys some names that jumped out at me as either being ranked too high or too low in the Yahoo ADPs. Let's do it. All right, so I'm going down. I got to admit, at the start of this thing, a lot of the players seem to be drafted pretty well. Like I'd say in the top 100 or so, I didn't have any really big surprises. I was like, oh my God, this guy's in the top 100. He sucks. Like, obviously, there's William Carlson, who we've talked about so many times on the podcast. He's been drafted average around 62nd overall. I think that's high, but also we've already discussed him a bunch. So you guys know what we think. Obviously, I see why he's getting drafted so high because he had that amazing year last year. We don't think he's going to repeat it. I assume there's nothing to say about William Carlson. The next guy who I was actually really surprised to be being drafted so high, especially because he hasn't really done anything to earn it, is Aaron Ekblad. He has an ADP of 101, and the defensemen that have been drafted after him are like Keith Yandel, Morgan Riley, Ryan Ellis, Oliver Ekman Larson, Provorov. Like, that's crazy to me. Like, Aaron Ekblad, let someone else take him if people are still into him. Like, he had... 38 points last year. His career high is 39 points in his rookie season. He's played four years now. I don't see a big breakout coming. We talked about in the Florida chapter of the Almanac that Keith Yandel is great. Like, I think he had a very underrated 56 points last year. Like, no one's talking about Yandel, but definitely grab Yandel ahead of Ekblad, right? Yeah, for sure. You want the top power play quarterback, and that's who it's going to be. Yeah. And Yandel's pretty good at the job, too. For anyone thinking Ekblad is still an up-and-comer, ready to, to snap up that prime deployment not counting on it yeah definitely like yandel's very good and also this florida team like so many stars on that top power play and that even strength also like florida's gonna score a lot of goals i really like keith yandel ekblad could be decent but way drafted way too high okay then there's a couple other guys that i came through that i just know that brian you would have on your list right there's yanni gourd tj oshi both uh 120 and 125 you we've already gone in depth on why you think those guys aren't going to keep it up so do you want to say anything about either of them no no, can I share some of my own guys? Yeah, sure. Sorry. Okay. I I saw Nick. What number are you at, Elon, in ADP? I'm around 120, 125. That's where I had Gourd and Oshi. I'll just throw it out there. You said that you think Yanni Gourd, you know, limited deployment. So it's hard to expect him to repeat it. And TJ Oshi, you just hate TJ Oshi, right? No, you, <laughs> that, that's your way to, you do this just to wind me up. Okay. Um, yeah, Gord lightning in a bottle last year, no pun intended, and uh, not going to continue. Even if his deployment sort of improves, I'd be surprised if he was able to get up quite as high again. Uh, okay, my guys who I thought were a little high, Nick Ehlers, he is being drafted on average 57th pick overall, and maybe it's his shots on goal that people covet, but he's being drafted ahead of guys who t- are top line, top power play, like Miko Rantanen and Sebastian Ajo. Uh, And then I've got a string of defensemen who maybe were ranked appropriately amongst defensemen, uh, or maybe not. You've got Latang at 79, Carlson at 84, Barry at 93. You have Rasmus Dahlin ahead of Rasmus Ristolainen, which I disagree for this uh, next season. And I know, Elon, you and I might have a difference of opinion on that. Cam Atkinson is kind of buried down at 122nd overall. And then one guy, uh, like one of the lowest defensemen, that I saw the lowest fantasy relevant defenseman, Kevin Shattenkirk is tucked away at 139th pick overall behind guys like Jake Gardner, Brandon Montour, Nick Letty, and Will Butcher. I think he's incredible value there. If you're getting him that late. 
Yeah, I had Shattenkirk marked down as well. Like, yeah, that's pretty wild that people would rather have like Jake Muzzin or yeah, like Nick Letty over Shattenkirk. He's often someone we've referenced as one of the top power play defensemen in the league. His first season with the Rangers didn't go as planned. Of course, he started with 18 points in 25 games, which was great. But then he fell off completely in December and ended up having a season cut short after undergoing surgery. So his overall numbers look bad, but it's clearly he was dealing with injury issues and then he missed the season. Now everyone forgets about him. But we're looking at a guy who put up 55 plus point paces with the Blues, mostly padded with points on the power play and i feel like people are downgrading the rangers a bit too much like yeah they're in a bit of a rebuild but at the same time he'll be on a power play with like zabanejad Kreider, zuccarello buchnievich like he's gonna have good guys playing with him i think i agree with you for sure shannon is great value being drafted so late like at 139th overall do you want me to throw a couple names at you now brian um yeah but let me get this one out of the way first just so i'm totally caught up duncan keith down at 189 I don't know if you see him as good value at that point, but I think he's great value there. And uh, for some reason, Evgeny Dadanov at 128, just behind Cam Atkinson. So I'm out of the 120s, Elon. You catch up to me and I'll get you around the 163 mark. Okay, well, I feel like Jaden Schwartz and Ryan Nugent Hopkins are in the 140s, and that seems very low to me. Schwartz it, like, had 59 points in 62 games last year. It's almost a point per game. He could be a steal, considering he's been taken in these drafts, apparently, after guys like Zucker, Taves, Yanni Gourd, Riley Smith, like I would take Jaden Schwartz over any of those guys that I just mentioned. The lines coming out of St. Louis so far, and I don't know how much stock you want to put into like first day of preseason lines, but they were apparently going with Ryan O'Reilly, Tarasenko and Maroon, and then Perron, Shen, and Schwartz. So that's a pretty good line for Jaden Schwartz to land on, even if he doesn't play with Tarasenko. And he might, and plus he'd still be there with him on the top power play. And then Ryan Nugent Hopkins, he missed some time last year with a cracked rib, but when he returned in March, he put up 17 points in his final 16 games after he got put on the top line and top power play with McDavid. And McDavid was quoted in the summer saying he'd like to see some consistency on his line mcdavid wants it give it to him let him play with rnh and let rnh get to like potentially 70 points so i really think you've got great value there i would rather have schwartz and ryan h over a lot of the guys being taken before them then you already mentioned shattenkirk also ryan o'reilly at 155 that's a steal to me i feel like he's like a 65 70 point guy next year likely to play with tarasenko on the top line and the top power plays getting drafted among the likes of kevin fiala and Derek brassard and Kadri, who's probably a third liner now and Corey perry give me ryan o'reilly well above those guys Yep, agreed. Uh, Just below Ryan O'Reilly, I've got Brendan Gallagher, who's being picked on average at 163rd behind guys like Steen Krejci, Tom Wilson, Jakob Sulferberg, and then Kyle Palmieri uh, right there with Gallagher behind all those guys and Patrick Maroon. And then behind all those guys, you've got Mark Stone at 165 before Carlson was traded. I had Stone as someone who could hit 70. I still think he's a really good hockey player, as are Anders Lee and Matt Duchesne, who are right around the same mark. So right when you're getting past the 160, and you have Gallagher, Palmieri, Stone, Anders Lee, Matt Duchesne, and then Jordan Everly just a little bit behind, you can really win your draft right there. Yeah, actually, in my draft yesterday, I got Anders Lee and Brendan Gallagher super late with really late picks. Unfortunately, plus minus is counted. I feel like they're both getting a little bit dinged for that, especially someone like Gallagher. But this league, it's a points league, and there's also points for hits. And Gallagher gives you some of those. So does Anders Lee, actually. So that can make up for potentially some plus minus hits. Uh, I actually have some guys before that I wanted to bring up. Nico Heeshear and Sam Reinhardt, both at around 158. I feel like both have huge upsides as they're slated to play with their team superstars. Heeshear with Hall and Sam Reinhardt with Eichel, of course. Heeshear, he had 52 points last season as a 19-year-old. News out of training camp. I know, Brian, you love these so much. He's apparently bulked up. He's gained eight pounds. What? And- 
So, I mean, that's good, right? Like, in yeah, a good that's, way. Like, that's, like, like, actually more of a reasonable take than a lot of these best shape of my life. These are, but it's also expected. These are young guys. Like, Hishi is still a teenager. Of course, he's going to be filling out his frame more than ever before. But good for him for putting in the time and dietary restrictions on himself or whatever he needed to do to make that happen. Yeah, he ate some protein, mom. He went to the gym and he lifted. And I think that he's going to build on that 52-point rookie season. I could expect him to hit 60 next year. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Maybe even a little bit higher, depending on how good Taylor Hall can be, if he could keep it up from last year. Then we've got Sam Reinhart, 50 points overall last year. But he had that huge breakout in the second half. Now he has Jeff Skinner on his line, potentially, along with Evander Kane. So I feel like there's a lot of upside for Reinhardt. And I would be taking him above some of the guys being taken ahead of him. How about JT Miller at around 162? Brian, normally I know you don't like recommending drafting guys due to expected line mates. But I feel like JT Miller might be the one exception in the league. Like he was already like a solid 50-point guy on the Rangers. So it's not like he was nobody before he got to the Lightning. But when he got to the Lightning, he had 18 points in his final 19 games of the season as a member of the Tampa Bay Lightning, six power play points. He was on the top power play as well. So there could be huge value there. Who knows if he stays there the whole time? If anything, I'd like to draft him. Hope he has a really hot start and then sell high. I love that move. That's what people should have done for Nemesnikov last year. But anyway, Miller at 162, I think he's going to have a really strong start to the year if he's still playing with Kucherov and Stamkos. And I don't see why he won't be. Yeah, no, I'm high on JT Miller. I don't know why you said I... You're right. It's not always wise to to pick a player who is going to be irrelevant if they're bumped off their top line, and you need to be careful about at what point in the draft you use those picks. But uh, JT Miller, pretty good guy to go for in that situation. Elon, I've got, a, I've got about six names left of players who are not even being drafted who are available in free agency. Uh, are you there yet in your list? No, not yet. So how about I'll say a few more? Okay. Okay. So you already said Gallagher and Palmieri. I want to throw Nolan Patrick there. He's also been around them around the 160s. I really like Nolan Patrick for next year. If he's going to be centering a line with like JVR and Voracek, you can't get much better. And the, we're talking about these guys being drafted around like the Hurdles, Ocposos, Connor Sherry's. So Gallagher, Patrick, Palmieri, obviously. You already mentioned Mark Stone. Also Matt Duchesne right along with him at around 165. We like both of them to be better than that, especially if they get traded, I think at this point. What about Alex Edler going at 165 in a bangers league? Like don't forget about Alex Edler. He had a great end to last season. He's great for hits. He's great for blocks. I'd be concerned about that plus minus, obviously, if you have to worry about that. But we don't like to promote leagues counting plus minus. But I really like Alex Edler for as long as he could stay healthy as the right now de facto top power play defenseman on Vancouver. Hopefully he can keep up what he did last year. Then we have Mika Zibanejad at 169. He had a head injury today, apparently in practice, which is concerning, but still like such great value for a guy that's a top line, top power play centerman. I could see him easily putting up a 60 point pace. And I think he has upside for more. I'd love to see him put together a full healthy season. Me too. Unfortunately, uh, these head injuries in, in training camp, it's crazy. Be careful. It's ridiculous. Uh, no hitting. That's my new thing. No hitting at all? Yeah. I mean, if if players cannot avoid each other's heads it's not worth it well you could maybe come up with other solutions like maybe just a super bad penalty like you know really long suspension try to make them not do it like right now i think that it's really you could have an immediate like automatic 10 game suspension for any contact with the head and that would i think get rid of it pretty quickly then you'd still have matters of interpretation i would love to see them crack down and get really serious about it but the time to do that was probably at least three years ago (laughs) And so I'm starting to lose faith that's going to happen. 
Yeah, for sure. And that's a whole debate for another podcast, probably not even a Keeping Carlson podcast, but it's definitely a really important issue right now. But we're talking fantasy here. I love when you could find a defenseman that you could draft super late and get good value. So you mentioned Duncan Keith, who could still be the top power play guy. Here's two guys I like even better than Duncan Keith for next year. Jared Spurgeon and Oscar Clefbaum, both being drafted around 170. Both guys who I think could be great value like everyone's written off Spurgeon I feel like like Matt Dumba's the new hotness Spurgeon had the same point pace as Dumba last year he was just injured at the end of the year it could easily just be Ryan Suter and Spurgeon on the top line and top power play again just like most of last year and Dumba falls off but even if not like even if Dumba does what everyone's expecting I still feel like Spurgeon could be great and also he's great for blocks then Oscar Clefbaum we talked about him last week with Dom so far slated to be the top power play defenseman on Edmonton. There's some concerns, but at 170, that's a really good value pick. Also, don't forget about Zach Parisi, who's been going at 174. He had a strong finish to last season. For what it's worth, he says he's feeling great. Brian, is this one of the best shape of your life? I don't think he said best shape of your life. I think we're Zach Parisi. It's just nice to hear him say he's not injured at all and like not hurting somewhere. I feel like he's always probably hurting somewhere usually. Yeah, Zach Parisi saying he got out of bed this morning is a great report on Zach Parisi. So yes, I like him as being a valuable guy uh, as a healthy player. And then one more I'll throw out at you. Past 190. So this is the reason why you don't need to rush to grab centers early. Like why rush for Jonathan Taves when you could get a similar upside Derek Stepan like five rounds later? Because that's how far back Derek Stepan is being drafted, which is crazy. Like I feel like Stepan is going to get between 55 and 60 points. He does it every year. And I feel like he might even have upside to do a little better than he usually does. Because next year he's got Clayton Keller and Alex Galchenyuk. Like you know, he's got some really good players around him. I really like what can happen with him. And I'll mention another guy in his line who is a little more, uh, you know, not as good as Derek Stepan. But don't forget about Richard Panic, by the way. He's been mostly undrafted, which makes sense. He's Richard Panic. He's not a big deal, but he ended last year on the top line and top power play. He had 15 points in 20 games to end last season. He also helps in hits. So in your bangers leagues, don't forget about uh, Richard Panic. So Brian, give me the rest of yours and then I'll throw just two more. Okay. And before I do that, Elon, make sure to add, this is a great list you're compiling. Make sure to add it to our show notes. I'll do it. Don't they're, you They're worry. not in there, but uh, the show notes are there for all patrons after every episode, keepingcarlson.com slash patron if you're having trouble keeping up. Uh, okay. Yeah, my guys passed the 180 draft pick mark who are unranked in terms of ADP on Yahoo. Uh, I picked out six before I got tired of looking. Uh, Kyler Yamamoto, Andre Burakovsky, Andreas Athanasiu, Richard Panic, who you just said, Thomas Shabbat, and Samuel Gerard as your D. Unfortunately, there didn't seem to be a whole lot of defensemen who went undrafted who were fantasy relevant. So uh, you just might want to make sure you take care of your decor and not think it's something you're going to uh, work out later. Yeah, like that's the thing. When you're drafting, people realize kind of late, like, oh, shoot, I need defensemen. So if you could grab defensemen a little bit earlier than them, then you'll have your pick of some pretty good forwards. Like I said, I got Gallagher and Andres Lee super late in my draft because earlier on I went and grabbed, I think it was like Spurgeon and Clefbaum, who were the guys I just mentioned, or maybe it was Spurgeon and someone else, but Edler. But like, I like some of these defensemen who you could grab maybe not as late as everyone else. And then you'll find some good forwards. Like, trust me, there'll be some good forwards there. Brian, I also had Andreas Athanasiu as a guy to look at. Unfortunately, Henrik Zetterberg, word is he's done in the NHL. He's had a great career. We should probably give him a more proper send-off at some point. That's not really our job, right? But he was great. And word is Athanasiu might become the new second-line center. So just like I was saying about Chris Tierney, but I feel like it's a much better situation because 
well, I don't know, actually, both both not great teams. But anyways, the top six spot is a top six spot. And don't forget about after the CU. One guy who actually was ranked but really low is Jake DeBrusque at 171. He can yeah. be a steal. If he gets on the top power play on Boston, which indications are he definitely can. You can listen to our Boston chapter of the Almanac as we went into reasons why and who he's competing with. So, yeah, Jake DeBrusque could be a really good sleeper. He's one of my other big sleepers for the year. Cool. All right, we did it. A marathon episode. We broke down their Carlson trade. We revisited our goalies. We looked at some Yahoo ADPs. And with that, we're going to thank you all for listening as we head forward into next season. If you want to support the show, if you like what you heard, first of all, this Almanac we've been talking about, it's still available, still for sale. Keepingcarlson.com slash Almanac. Over 27 hours of content. So if you want more, you can marathon this thing. Listen at 1.5 speed if you need to. And we covered every single fantasy relevant player and you get access to this projection sheet, which we've been changing as recently as this episode, as we've been talking about these players. Another thing you can do to support the show is become a patron of Keeping Carlson. And one of the perks of becoming a patron of the show, this is like for $5 a month. This is nothing. And you can get entrance potentially into the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. So the sign-up deadline has passed, but we're opening up a wait list. And if we get enough to fill another division, then we will be able to open it up. And even if we don't, then you'll be on the wait list and be able to take over from some teams that maybe go inactive during the season. But I think we'll be able to fill another division. We just need like five or six more people. So if you have, are interested and you're sad that you missed the sign-up deadline, it's not too late. So anyways, you can just go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. You'll find all the information. You can send us any questions that you have on Twitter at keepingcarlson. We'll get back to you shortly. But okay, with that, we are going to end the show. So thanks everyone for listening. And Brian, let's cue the outro music. And why don't you read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast with a still relevant name uh, was researched with help. No, it was presented by Dabra Hockey and supported by our KeepingCarlson.com slash patron. It was researched with help from Dabra Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dabra Prospects, Corsica, Natural Stat Trick, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, Fantrax, and Yahoo! Great job, as always, Brian. And we will talk to you all again next week about, I don't know, we'll see what's happening in training camp next week, and we'll put together an episode. Until then, don't be a dummy, and keep on keeping Carl Sun. <laughs>